You're about to pull a quay on me. <laughs> he just went. I missed like five minutes of stuff. I'm like, oh shit, we're going. I need to hit record. Okay. Yeah. You ready? Sorry. Right, so we're recording now. Okay. Okay. Um, Sergeant Fritch um, with uh, Six Marine Corps Green District, formerly with Victor 18, born in uh, Chatancho Naval Base, Okinawa, Japan. I think I'm 26 or 27. It's one of the two. <laughs> um, I kind of lose track these days, but. Yeah, I was with um, the 24th Mew, Victor 18, Cat White, Wu-Tang, and uh, yeah, pretty much it. Did you join the Marine Corps early, like 17, 18, or? No, man. I was a moron. <laughs> um, I joined at 21, and my brother joined at 20. We're 18 months apart. We joined the same day. We went to boot camp the same day. We were bunkmates and everything. The reason I joined late was because my parents wanted me to go through some college first so that I'd be eligible for officer later on. Did not go to script by any stretch of the imagination. Left college with a buttload of debt and uh, a couple Fs. Dad was pretty disappointed about all of that, but you know, you make mistakes in life. So my brother and I enlisted in uh, 2017. We shipped off to boot camp January 21st, 2018. We did not do the buddy program. We kind of hold up together in the processing room. And then we just, I mean, essentially held hands until we got to, you know, selection period. Just like this group over there, this group over there, and this group in the middle, y'all just stand there like idiots, which was not a tall order for us. We were definitely able to do that. So we ended up being bunkmates, crazy enough. And that was pretty nice sometimes, but also pretty bad because the DIs tore into us 24-7. So... I don't think anyone pronounced our name correctly for the first three phases. Only anyone did. This is F-R-I-C-H, but they would say Fredericks, French, French, Fix. It's like everything wrong. I don't know what it was, but yeah. Kind of joined later. Kind of at the uh, request of my parents, but I also wanted to join when my brother was eligible as well. And then things just kind of got away from us. And then finally, we, we walked into the recruiting office, Staff Sergeant Bertram. And uh, Staff Sergeant Comstra, he was the station commander, and Bertram was our recruiter. Bertram was rolling on nut after nut in his recruiting month and had a really bad three months prior. So when my brother and I walked in, fully queued, you know, high alphas on the ASVAB, willing to ship in January, he was like, my life has been saved. <laughs> so he said that him and I were the best thing that happened to that recruiting station all year. It's crazy to think of it that way, but apparently it had been a rough year. So yeah, it's kind of... We joined. Why we joined was because we wanted to be like our dad. In my dad's words, I don't care if you join the Marine Corps or not, but if you don't join the special forces of some other branch, you're not welcome home. <laughs> and that wasn't jest. That wasn't jest, but we took it to heart. So we did Marine Corps infantry. I got an 88 on the ASVAB. He got a 74. Freaking, you know, decently smart kids. And uh, yeah. We both like absolute morons. We're like, all three XXs, uh, Mr. Staff Sergeant. That was it. <laughs> well, you're not being a moron as me. I waited until I joined when I was 22. I just graduated college. And uh, three days after I graduated, like my graduation ceremony, I was in Paris Island. <sighs> my goodness. Yeah. And yeah, that was my original plan too, is I was going to do, I was going to do an enlistment. And then after that, I was going to try to go officer. Mm. Obviously that didn't work. Yeah, obviously that didn't work out. <laughs> Got jaded early. Yeah, 
no, after uh, after about six months in the fleet, I'm like, yeah, four years sounds good. I'll be honest, man. Um, my first two years at LAR kind of took the wind out of my sails. Same thing that Landon and Waylon kind of alluded to. So I understand what you're saying with that. I do. Yeah. Unfortunately, at least I think our time with LAR, the morale wasn't the best. It was just right after, pretty much right after all the uh, combat vets had left. Because all my seniors, when I was there, they talked about like, oh, remember when so-and-so trained us this way? And he was like, like all of their seniors, all of my seniors, seniors had done like combat pumps, at least one to like Afghanistan. Yeah. So they got roughed up pretty good when they were boots, so they did the same to us. But yeah, LER is just weird. It's really weird. It's not like other infantry battalions. You're right, yeah. It's odd because it's it's almost exclusively mechanized. And the the amount of maintenance you do on those vehicles, it it requires all hands to keep it going. And so it ruins a lot of your training time you could spend you know turd stomping and you know grunting out the woods but they still they still serve a good role you know i've did a few training operations at itx and mct and uh, ntc i mean having us on the map it was like acid to the other foreign forces that we trained with and we just chewed through them of course i got to lar right about the time that alpha company i think that was alpha, no it wasn't alpha some other some other company there had been kind of dissolved. There was a bunch of hazing charges going around. Things were getting really timid. I think it was Corporal Tatum or something like that. One of the young Lance Corporals and Corporals that tried out for Marsoc from there. He was our first senior, and he and another one of his buddies walked into the lounge where we had been told to go after we got in their group chat, you know, to go there. He walked in there and his buddy was drinking from a handle of rum straight handle and i was like this is not going to be good this is not going to be a good boot period <laughs> so they basically said listen we're up for promotion don't screw this up do what you're told and don't talk back and that was the gist of our very long talk with them and that's pretty much it and yeah the culture there is really weird and it did not prepare me for 1-8. But I ended up blossoming there later on, like a year or so later. So, yeah. Yeah, that company that got dissolved, that was that was mine. That was out in Delta. <laughs> so, yeah. We, we got dissolved. And then uh, me and most of the guys went to... Well, we pretty much all got folded into Charlie. So... <laughs> I'm sorry about this, man. I'm... Sick as a dog. No, nah, I get it. I got you. And again, whatever. If you want to feel like you want to stop or anything, like just say the word, bro. No, I'm Gucci. I just smashed some Dayquil, so you got me <laughs> like several hours. Just whiskey <laughs> on the way here soon enough, so we'll definitely open up. Oh hell yeah, yeah. But getting through, uh, I know. I mean, drill instructors—they're gonna shit on you for. They're gonna find a reason, but. Did y'all, did y'all, you and your brother support each other going through the training cycle in boot? Or? It was, that's a good question because I thought that's what it would be. And I spent a lot of my early military career wanting to be in league with my brother, you know. But they, 
they kind of did a good job of dividing us as well as they could. And it wasn't like we had enmity towards each other. It was, it was more that we simply wanted to survive. And the more distance we were away from each other, the less likely it was we'd get torn up for each other's issues. But it was inevitable that when one DI was ITing me, another DI would grab Cole and, you know, switch us out. So Cole would be there, you know, spitting knowledge while I was getting hazed. I would be up there spitting knowledge while Cole was getting hazed. Yeah. <laughs> so later on in the series or uh, in the uh, phases, I think third phase, if I screwed up, Cole got screwed up. If Cole screwed up, I got screwed up. So it was kind of like one of those, you know, like, you know, you want to be the blue falcon, you want to be the, you know, the buddy fucker, if you will, and that's what you're going to be. So it taught me a little bit about, you know, wanting to take care of other people through my actions, make sure I was a proficient individual. But ultimately, I left boot camp with the mindset, if I'm competent and I care, generally speaking, things will pan out. So funny story from boot camp, Joel Strasser and Silva, he's our heavy hat. He's, I think he's off of it now, but last year, for the past two years, he was the um, the island drill hat, like the guy that over the, like the whole island there in Paris Island. Great dude, vicious little guy. I remember just before the crucible, we were cleaning up some stuff outside because they were also cleaning the barracks for final inspections. And he had got on me for something. He felt like a like a little pot of sand inside of one of my uh, mortar pouches in my pack, and he was just getting on me and he had me getting up and getting down and getting up and getting down and I was doing push-ups and he screamed into my ear with everything he had and I felt a crack in my left ear and I was like wow that was a weird crack but I couldn't hear him anymore and I was like crap <laughs> he had broken my eardrum just by screaming into me so he was he was you know right up against my ear he'd broken my eardrum just by screaming at me and it was oozing for like the next two three days so it was a rough was a rough little instance there but loud dude very loud. You always knew when he was upset. Joseph Sazerin Wells was, you know, he was on his last series. He was ready to pop out. So he was a little bit more hands-off than most of the other senior drill instructors. Super into anime. Kind of weird. <laughs> but, yeah, I ended up, we go. We went to the rifle range. It's another weird story. We went to the rifle range in our, I can't remember what they call him, our, our rifle, our marksmanship instructor teaching us. And he goes, and then, of course, if one of you guys gets a high shooter, then you get to have my campaign cover or whatever. I was like, sir, this recruit has a question, sir. It's like, what do you want? Sir, uh, what would a recruit have to get in order to get highest? He goes, the highest, you idiot. And I was like, oh, my God, this is stupid. Of course, I knew that. But uh, I ended up shooting high shooter by like one point in Wayland. Greg Wayland, the guy you talked to, was the other guy. They shot one point behind me. Him and Tiger Tell Gomez, weird name. And... uh so I graduated with him. He was the honor graduate from boot camp. I was the high shooter and Boos was the Iron Man. I would say that in terms of performance, my brother didn't do so well in boot camp as, as well as I did. I enjoyed it like Greg did. I kind of blossomed to a degree there. But I don't know that I would want to go back as much as I would be okay if I had to, you know. I'd be fine with it. But yeah. Bootcamp experience was pretty good. I learned a lot from that about being okay with being uncomfortable. So yeah, after we uh, left boot camp, came back home. By the way, when it comes to the weather thing, yeah, we were making fun of the Northern boys for you know getting chilled. Um, <laughs> and uh, 
the Nats were horrendous, but because we lived down south, you know, it wasn't so bad for us. I remember uh, our final PT that we did as an Italian or as a company or something. Our legs were black in the San Felice. It was just terrible. And uh, we got back and our legs were all bleeding and our arms were bleeding from getting bit by bugs. And Thank God that was the last day there, or last day doing PT out there because another week and we would have been, in, you know, just infested. So we did get in, you know, the early part of the year, January-ish, and kind of left March, April timeframe. I don't remember. By the way, you're not going to get very good at, you know, accurate dates out of me. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, but you're going to get a conglomeration of uh, unrelated memories. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was pretty much the boot camp experience. We relied upon each other sometimes. We would pray together all the time, go to church together. He was a squad leader. I was the guide a few times. But yeah, that's pretty much it. And then ITB, when you're going through ITB, did you get picked for B52? Did you want to be a 52? Or? That's a cool story. <laughs> I did not want to be a 52 by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, that was the last MOS I wanted. I would have rather been an 11 than a 41 than I would have been a 52. I wanted to be a 31, like my brother. My brother was slotted to be a 31 from the beginning. He was a big guy. I was a big guy. But they were running short on 52 slots, just like McGuire and, and Greg said. And eventually they were like, hey, who here has a, a GT above 120? And I was like the idiot I am. Stuck my, my hand up. And uh, I had made a deal with Staff Sergeant Felgenhauer, who was our head instructor there. Like, if... If I do really well, if I ace the final test of, you know, the initial, you know, training period, can I be 31? And he's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And he did not hold up to his deal. So that was what it was. Um, this is my wife, Elisa, in the background. Oh, you're introducing me? Yeah. <laughs> Hello. <Hey. laughs> um, so I didn't want to be a 52. I ended up getting told to be a 52. And I kind of fought tooth and nail, kicking and screaming till the end of graduation. Yeah, that was uh, interesting. I did enjoy kind of the supremacy you felt from being the most powerful weapon on the battlefield, not, not you know, specifically in the battle space, but on the battlefield being the most effective, powerful, long range, accurate weapon out there. But the, the lack of mobility with the system itself when it was, you know, dismounted was difficult. The intricacy of everything was hard, especially because my mind and my heart weren't there. I did really, I, I did not do well at the schoolhouse, but I, I graduated. I remember saying bye to Cole when we finally left ITB and I was just so torn apart. He did not give it, like he did not give a damn at all. <laughs> he could have cared less, man. He's like, finally, I'm away from this wacko. He went to the West Coast with one five. And I was like, I was thinking, you know, every real Marine goes to the 1st Marine Corps Battalion, you know, the 1st Marine Corps uh, Division there on the West Coast. That's where that's where the real Marines are. I don't know why I thought that. I think probably because my dad, you know, idolized his time there. But I ended up with second. And it was just like disappointment upon disappointment. And I was just jaded as hell. But. And this isn't, this isn't me just like ranting to you to be angry. This is me being honest about my experience. I really wasn't happy with what I had. And little did I know that I was still fulfilling my dream of becoming a Marine. I was still fulfilling my dream of joining the infantry. I was still fulfilling all these goals I'd set for myself. And no doors had really been closed off to me. 
but because I got caught up in the intricacies, I, you know, my vision fell short of the true grandeur of my opportunity, you know, that I had. The next hit was LAR. <laughs> I got told I was going to LAR. I was like, what the hell is a LAR? <laughs> um, when they came to pick us up, I was like, these guys look like depression. Yeah. <laughs> um damn that's so, that's so funny because it's so true yeah <laughs> just like they look like they they put on their uniform while smoking a cigarette and just like cursing the whole time what what they, i kind of imagined they did every morning but anyways they got us to the vehicle and they brought us up there and they introduced themselves to who's the first sergeant master sergeant master guns or something I didn't, I didn't really care. I was just like, screw this. I'm not going to remember your name. I don't care how many rockers you have. I'm going to forget about you. Right. But anyways, I got to LAR. I passed my first room inspection, which was monumental. I couldn't believe it. The only thing that hit me on was my light up top had a bug inside of it and they ripped down the light. And uh, that was pretty much it. But I was a super clean guy coming out of boot camp. I was a house moose, not the house mouse for the DIs. That's too big to be a house mouse. But uh, super neat coming out of boot camp and you know, kept the room super tidy, super, super tidy. So they never really got on to me for that. I didn't leave pizza boxes or beer cans or anything, any of that bullshit. It's just trying to keep it you know, nice. And I, I felt less upset or depressed when it was like that. So for me, you know, I was away from my family. I was away from my brother. I was in an MOS I didn't want in a battalion that I knew was not going to deploy, told to shut the hell up and color in the corner so somebody else could further their career. And it was just like, what the hell, bro? The next day we got up. It wasn't the next day. It was some other day after that. And this is my vague memory of this, but somebody had thrown beer cans or beer bottles at a bunch of boots, and there was an incident with PMO. But they broke an old glass in the ground, and it was in the grass. So I had us put on our boots, our flax, our gloves, our knee pads. You no, know, we didn't have knee pads. We were in, we were in green on green with you know full battle rattle, and we were on hand and knee picking up glass in the uh, courtyard there, like five o'clock. And then we had to put everything back, get in formation, and uh, do accountability. And then we started PT and got went you know went and got something to eat. Didn't have a car at this time, so I was you know, trying to bum a ride. We ended up at the motor pool and I was like, I'm going to get to see the new hammerhead systems or the Wally systems. As some people call it. It's going to be so cool. And they're like, no, y'all are a bunch of boots. You're going to be loaders. And if anything, more likely, you know, a ramp bitch. You're not going to be, you're not going to be touching these systems for a while. <sighs> so we busted rust a lot on everything. We're busting rust off of the wire brushes to bust rust. It was like everything, you know, doing um, carbon checks on the exhaust, sticking your hand up in there and, you know, seeing how much carbon was in there. You know, so it wasn't that great. And there was a lot of pain retains when it came to nine lines. So I would say a fairly average experience for LAR boot drops. I don't know how average it was for the Marine Corps as a whole, though. So, yeah. Kind of going forward in my career at LAR, I picked up Lance Corporal fairly early. Sergeant Capo threw me on a roster, completely unprepared, mind you. Threw me on a roster, 
And I feel like this is one of his times where he's like, hey, I don't fucking like you. You know, sink or swim. For the Isaac Comp. And I'm, you know what the Isaac Comp is, right? Yeah. So it's one of those battalion exercises indigenous to LAR for Corporal Isaac. It was the first combat-related death in LAR for the War on Terror. Second LAR, that is. And so I think it was 83 Marines participated. They had been training for three or four months to you know, participate in the event. It was run by fire teams of four. I was given three brand new boots. Like they checked in the day that I found out I was doing the Isaac Comp. Three days, i.e. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. On Monday, the event began. So I was given three days, three boots with less time in service than their uniforms, honestly, because the uniforms were on the depth before they got there. Just a disastrous, a recipe for disaster. But, you know, I stayed up super late, got up super early with them every single day. You know, didn't go to church or anything, just went through nine lines, called for fires, got their gear set up perfectly, got them started on a hydration regimen. I just really took my time and focused on them. And in teaching them, I also learned a lot that I needed to learn for the competition. And after was it four or five grueling days, just miserable days, I ended up winning the competition. And my fire team placed third out of like 13 or something, which I thought was pretty freaking cool. So I won the competition, placed third as a whole. And I got a meritorious promotion, a NAM from Major General Furness. And I was like, damn, this is where I'm at. This is my click. This is my niche right here. I can, I can be an infantryman still. I also did a lot of competition shooting. So I think it was Lieutenant Wall or Lieutenant Paul. It was Lieutenant Paul. He was a big like philosophical guy always did like you know it was a pretty good shooter did a few ranges with him and he wanted to see if you know who's better out of the two of us and so we did a uh, t-rex arms shooting drill with me you know like the lucas bodkin stuff and uh i'd been competing in rifle pistol shotgun for many many years now and needless to say i was back at the line downloading my magazines and taking off my kit by the time he was about done with his drill so I got done really, really quick and I had hundred percent accuracy and everything. And you know, I think a lot of a lot of some you know, some of the senior leaders kind of saw that and they were like, Well, this kid probably knows what he's doing. He won the Isaac Comp, he's dusting some of our best shooters. Maybe he knows a thing or two. So I started getting trusted to help run more ranges as a you know, as a corporal and all. One range I ran with not didn't run myself, but runway one range I was running, we had a bunch of boots that came from the most recent boot drop and because of COVID they couldn't do the range and so they didn't have any real rifle experience shooting and this was the worst day of my Marine Corps career up until then I almost got my head shot off by one of these boots NDing on the range up range I found out I was going to this uh Victor 1-8 I found out I was deploying the 24th Mew I was freshly married and I found out that we were expecting my wife and I out of nowhere and um it just, it all hit me at the same day within about a six hour period. And, uh, yeah, I had to kind of keep up appearances for the wife cause she wasn't handling the pregnancy so well. She was surprised. She wanted us to have like a year or so together. I really couldn't have cared either way. I was happy to have a, a kid on the way, but you know, she wanted to have more time, just her and I, and you talk about somebody who's just been strong the whole time. Elisa has just, She's had to live the life that most military wives don't want to have to live. You know, kind of the horror story, military wife life. She's had to endure it. Found out she was a 
expecting out of nowhere, you know, unplanned, unplanned pregnancy fairly early in the marriage. Found out I was leaving to a different battalion and going on deployment. We spent, we have spent less time together than we have apart by, I think, a four to one margin. And that was pretty tough for her, but she was very strong, both in the Lord and in her commitment to me, mothering our, our son. And, um, man, so I digress. I came to Victor 1-8, checked in. I found out that Greg and Landon were there and I was elated. I mean, I was just out of my mind happy. Checked in with Staff Sergeant uh, Craig Riggle, and you can edit out the name if you're worried about any of that. I love Craig. He's a great, great Marine, great dude, big fisherman. So we bonded over that. Literally the shirt that I'm wearing right now. Um, he showed me the ins and outs. Greg and Landon kind of showed me how to work the machine guns because there's a huge learning curve there with the of the 240 stuff in terms of like mounting. And of course, you know, the SOP for employment and everything, bulldogging was all new to me. Um, there was some stuff that I kind of brought from LAR in terms of like vehicular movement, but you cannot go up a mountain with a JLTV like you can with an LAV. It was difficult to learn the differences there, but I finally wrapped my head around it. Um, and it was, I can be very honest with this, I was not at all the kind of Marine in Victor 1-8 that I was in 2nd LAR. And I regret that to this day, that I didn't give more to that team, that I wasn't as proficient. I just, I have a lot of regret that I didn't perform better with that battalion. So we did the McCree, sorry. Oh my gosh, I forgot about this. The McCree. I remember them talking about the McCree and I was in LAR for the McCree and I got eaten alive by chingers. I mean, I had 218 bites below my belt on my legs. It was vile. Oh my God. Some of the most uncomfortable pain I've felt. And I had to go to the whole McCree like that. And we were just sitting there on a road, looking down the road the whole time. And the one time we moved, we went through an open area and of course, Cat was waiting for us and they just swacked us. I was like, damn it, there goes that. <laughs> yeah, the bugs were horrendous. Cat was on our ass. And we did nothing but sit and wait around until we got killed. So McCree was, just felt like a waste of time. And of course, I got violently ill from one of the MREs. How do you get sick from an MRE, you know? <laughs> I, got, I got food poisoning from an MRE. God knows how. And I was vomiting out the back of the LAV while we were sitting there on the road. That may have been why Sergeant Capo didn't really like me. One of the many instances. <laughs> but yeah, now I'm in 1-8. I'm doing field ops with them. Always kept a fishing rod in the JLTV that I was in as a VC because there's tons of fishing places out in the training areas. And I actually have a photo of me, you know, holding the fish during one of our landings from being on ship. I got out of the vehicle, ran down to a pond, threw out there, caught a fish, showed it, threw it back, and ran back into the vehicle. It's pretty sick. It's pretty badass. The ship ops were pretty ass, and you can edit this name out too, but if if the guys want an unedited version of this, was a nasty dude. Holy crap. Going through his own issues in life and stuff, kind of lost his will to care about stuff. You know, some people go to drink, some people go to eating, some people go to, you know, drugs are just too lazy. He just went to not taking care of himself. Stinky, really stinky. Holy cow. Didn't know a person could sink so bad unless they were dead. But he stunk up the entire level that we were on. From front to back of the ship, that entire deck smelled like him. 
because the ventilation. And uh, I remember we had a come to Jesus moment there. Waylon and Landon had to kind of witness it to make sure that I didn't get called for hazing because we didn't trust him not to, you know, rat on me. And I wanted to place him on suicide watch because of how bad we tore into him. I was kind of worried that he was going to, you know, give up or something. Because it was so bad, he was a he was actually like a hazmat risk to some of our our other Marines there. To put it in perspective, you know the AIDS water that's in the bottom of the showers when it doesn't like it clogs up. It's been clogged for twenty plus years in that ship, so it clogged up. There's just AIDS water in the partition area there. He dropped his towel and his soap bar into that water, and so he wrapped it in his clean shirt only. One of two shirts he brought for the whole like two weeks we were there. He wrapped it in his clean shirt so that it was clean to touch. Put on his, used his dirty shirt to dry himself off and put that on. And then shoved everything into his wall locker. Like AIDS water and soap. Just, and then kind of like shoved his boots on top of it. His social security card was stuck to the inside of his shoe. And he had been on like six hikes with us. Walking on his social security card. He's just the weirdest kid, man. He is the one that popped on the urn test and ended up getting, you know, getting kicked out of our particular unit. I think he was in the Marine Corps for a while after that, but I had a stack of paper on him, just like negative counselings, corrective actions. And I, I had like four months of stuff just piled up. And first sergeant was like, we still need the bodies. So first sergeant, we can't do that because of this. He's like, well, you die. Good job for documenting everything. I'll see what I can do. But no stinky boy on our ship. So we went from 18 in our berthing to 17 in our berthing in one free bunk, which we threw extra gear on. And uh, that was a little funny story for you. Just the stinkiness of that dude was mind-boggling. It was like cheese and lutefisk. You ever smelled lutefisk? So lutefisk is a Norwegian delicacy, and it's just fermented fish. And uh, yeah, it's, it's disgusting. It's known to cause a gag reflex in almost everybody who smells it. So, um, yeah, you smell like lutefisk and cheese. There's always a handful of dudes like that on ship. We had, there was a whole, well, we were on the, uh, we, I know y'all were on, what, the mid deck? No, we were on the small deck. We were on the Carter Hall. Okay, yeah, yeah, small deck. Yeah, we were on the big deck when we deployed. So our brother had already had like 200-something dudes in there. But there was one aisle. It was right. It had to be right across from ours. Why it had to be right across from ours, I don't know. You go into that aisle at your own risk. That's how bad it smelled. There was a good chance of you going in there past the first set of bunks and passing out because that's how bad the smell was. <laughs> Somehow, thank God, it did not spread to the rest of the birthing, but it was God awful. <laughs> and it was only three dudes back in there. There was oh like eight, there was like eight racks. Most of them were empty except for like one because uh we can only fit so many guys in our aisle. So one of our guys had to sleep over there on that side, but he slept on like the very end. And there was like three dudes in the, like the back corner, or not even three. I think it was just two of them. And I don't know what was going on back there or what they were doing or just not doing. I guess it, it just oh my god, it was so bad. It was so bad. Or growing the next coronavirus. Maybe. I have no <laughs> idea. Maybe their plan was to 
if we were on that boat for any longer, it's a poison all of us. But I don't I know. know. Oh my gosh, dude! No, they, there's always a hazard risk in someone's birthing. Hazard risk, I mean. So yeah, our first couple ship ops were a little rough, but we all kind of developed a shared enjoyment for sea shanties or at least singing together. Waylon undersold you on this. I'm gonna rat him out. His voice is like the sweet Lord baby Jesus himself. I mean, the Catholics could create a whole religion around his voice. He is just got the course, man. He had his own versions of songs like Fire on the Mountain. You've got to hear that recording, man. It's so good. He wrote a song for my son when we got back. So I still have. Great on the guitar. Very simple player, but very, you know, very good. Him and him and Landon were great. And Landon had a very much different style. So we would write, we would murder songs like I hurt myself instead of that. It was like, you know, edit this out, but you know, like <laughs> I hurt my I hurt my Dave. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can see why I want that. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's funny though. Yeah. The trilogy pretty cotton picking hilarious. Zachary Shot was kind of our scribe of odd sayings. So every funny thing or funny instance that happened or just absolutely horrible thing we said, we just made us all burst into laughter for no reason. He wrote down, he still has that book somewhere and one of these days we're gonna get together and read through it. I'm gonna have to get back to him and get on about that. Yeah, you need to, man, because we had some funky stuff written down. <laughs> um even funkier than you know the dark green marines anime taste. Um oh god. No, we yeah. had a few of the we had a few of those on our ship as well. And they were just they would just watch it right in the middle of the common area. Like we had a little common area. That's how big our burden was with like 60 dudes walking in and out of there any given hour. And they would just sit right in the middle and just watching. And I'm like, not hentai. It's orc. A number of times I heard that. Oh, my God. I don't know. I don't know what to think about that particular genre. But uh, yeah, ship life was unique to be sure. Our birthing really got a well, you know, got along pretty well, honestly. Me, Greg, and who was one of our seniors, it's a bigger dude, loved the guy, super funny. But uh, me, Greg, and him were in our side, but we would just tear it off on the PS4 and, you know, have sea shanties after after a meal, and just I think we had a really good, you know, environment there. Way better than the average Marines experience in a birthing. Way better. I really do believe that. Because, you know, you could hear screaming and wailing and gnashing of teeth from every other <laughs> And the birthing right next to us, the Navy guys, they actually had a sewer pipe break and pour into their barracks. They their birthing there. And that was disgusting. Oh, it was worse than surprisingly. But yeah. Man, ship life wasn't all that bad with them, but I didn't like being away from the family or being in that stupid tin can. I didn't like the ship, you know? I didn't like that lifestyle. The Chowhall lines were horrendous. And the snipers would, uh, they had this little hole, porthole. It popped up right before the entrance of the uh, Chowhall. And so you'd be sitting there, you know, just jawjacking with your boys, and all of a sudden you hear a clank, and then, you know, like three snipers had just spawned in front of you. And you're just like, what the hell, dude? <laughs> and so. You had to you had to watch yourself because they would sit there and like, like peek and make sure no one was looking and try to get up. They're funny guys. So yeah, ship life was pretty chill. I enjoyed it. A lot of good training. I did a lot of strength training on ship, but because of the instability of it rocking all the time, being on the little deck, 
it's kind of hard to do that. So coming up to deployment after all the training and everything, a lot of that was a blur. We were expecting fairly soon. And my staff director, Staff Director Riggle, really, really helped me out. I think because he knew we were going to be going somewhere dangerous. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he's just a good dude. He is a good dude. But he helped me stay behind for three extra weeks so I could, you know, kind of watch my son, you know, come into the world. We had an in-home birth with a midwife there on base. Seamless process. Super stress-free. Elisa just handled it so good, so well. And the midwife was super impressed with how well we worked together. Gregory came out, no hitch, stayed with him for two and a half weeks, and then I left. And so I left. This is a note we'll have that's important for the next, for later on. I left him at about three weeks old. I flew out with David Corbett because he was a late deployer because he had COVID. We went to Rota, Spain and stayed out in town for two weeks. It was fantastic. We stayed at the Playa de la Luz, just a hotel by the sun, or the hotel by the moon. I don't remember. It loses sun, sorry. The drinks were great. The people were awesome. Everyone there like seemed into fitness. It was really cool. Um, of course, David and I were into a different kind of fitness. So we were, you know, two brawlic Americans walking around. The dude was, David's always been shredded. Gorgeous little man, Peach. Um, <laughs> And uh, we were there with a recon captain. I put on some weight in Rota because the hotel food was so good. And also, I had no self-discipline. The weight rooms were all calisthenic focused, so we couldn't find enough weight to throw around. <laughs> a lot of good drinks there. Spaniards just make them different, dude. Way better. Way better than Americans do. Like, my favorite drink there was uh, Old Fashioned, and they all made a great had this one place, uh, Sunset Barn Grill. Chick there, I think she liked David and I because we would stay later and she would just start making us Long Islands, just one after the other. I think one night we had like six or seven Long Islands after drinking earlier. And uh, we helped to close down shop. We sat outside, we finished our drinks, and then we realized that it was past curfew. So him and I were just absolutely sloshed running back to our hotel because if you get caught out there it's not good for you because it was you know quarantine period for covid we're just running back to our hotel down the boardwalk next to the beach to try not to get seen by any vehicles and you know sprinted like i don't know a mile and a half somehow neither one of us vomited from all the alcohol we'd taken in we got back to our rooms we you know laughed our asses off the whole way and then we crashed and the next morning we had a righteous hangover and that was one of the you know peak nights of our time there. Certainly not as reverent as, uh, as Greg and Mike, but uh, yeah, here to be honest. We came back to the LHC, and that was kind of interesting. Felt you know it's so weird to be around so many people and feel completely isolated. And that's what the LHC was like. I'm around thousands of people, and I am so alone. I remember feeling that. We got on, I think it was a Osprey. We took that to the LSD. I remember how hairy that was because there was a pretty decent crosswind. And the pilot was just remarkable. Great, great pilot. No idea who he was. Some major. Said some funny stuff on the intercom. I can't remember what it was for the life of me. 
something about dying. And uh, we landed, I got integrated into platoon again, and that was awkward as hell. Being on the LSD, and you know there's that stigma like, you little piece of shit, you've been off shit for this whole time. Like, I'm just sitting at home, chilling and killing. And I shaved my head and everything, and I you know, did the customs. But I still felt, you know, like there was a little extra pressure on me to perform because, you know, I've been sitting around for a while, at least in their eyes. A lot of them had never had kids, so they didn't know how, you know, brutal that can be in terms of sleep deprivation. But I didn't really like to tell them all the things we did when we go to Spain because they would have hated us even more. <laughs> because the most they had up to that point was, you know, beer on the pier in England. <laughs> and meanwhile, I was living the city life and you know, literally a Mediterranean oasis. So there was a little bit of a, you know, stigma to overcome there. But I think that after a couple of weeks, we kind of worked past it. I did my best to. Sorry, I rambled for, I'm looking at it right now, like 20 minutes, 29 minutes. Um, what kind of questions do you have? Just, I don't want any no, that's, that's probably funny. You ramble as much as you want. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, I mean, most of the questions I would have had, I feel like you answered just, you seem like you, at least like being, being in 1A, especially with, because you came to 1A a little bit later than uh, Waylon and Landon did, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Several months. Yeah. So they got to, they had had their bad system of fire. Now they're helping you get oriented and everything. Yeah. So I'm sure that made, especially with them two already being there, made that transition a lot easier to deal with. It did. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, see, I will always, and I, I don't say this in any sort of, you know, odd way. This is, you know, just a, just a biblical definition of brotherly love. I will always love Greg and, and Mike. You know, they helped me through some tough times prior to, during, after Kabul and all that. They were real, you know, they were real brothers and get me back into that because they knew that I wasn't a piece of shit. You know, everyone else just assumed I was. They assumed that I wasn't going to do well because, I was, you know, an LAR cat. And then when I didn't know what to do with a 50 cal, you know, like charge it, then load it. It's kind of embarrassing, you know, the freaking PFC can school me on a, you know, a Marine Corps fighting instrument. That's freaking embarrassing. So, um, yeah, they were a godsend. They really were. Zachary Schott also helped me out a good bit. McCall did too. McCall was just a frolic strong built like a brick house man he was i wanted to say like he was Samoan or something like that but he was a little shorter head traps so tall that they almost touched his earlobes a kid could deadlift like thirty thousand pounds don't even try to tell me otherwise and i remember getting hit by him when we do the uh the boxing matches in the well deck i remember getting hit by him one time golly gee holy cow i've never been hit so hard in my life and I used to work with cattle, so that's freaking saying something. <laughs> you rocked my world. That's the first time I've had a bloody nose from being hit by somebody because I've been hit, you know, plenty of times up to that point. But someone hitting me, giving me a bloody nose, I was like, that's a new experience altogether. But yeah, got something else. So he was good on the gun too. Sevener, I don't think Sev ever liked me, but you know, I got to be by guns. He had his own reasons. But most of the weapons guys, especially the guys in the birthing, I feel like, you know, were all right with me at the very least. So, culture was pretty good. Greg and Landon were 
um, who did Rota, LHD, LSD, Rota again. I remember we went to Portugal eventually, and Portugal was, was good training, but man, we got the dick and beat out of us. The, uh, <laughs> the Portuguese Marines there just schooled us on the sand, man. They had their little, you know, Toyota Tundras and Toyota Hiluxes or whatever, and they were just zipping around us you know, like gnats. And we were just getting bogged down every 30 yards. This is a funny story for you. Um, I had not, because it was kind of a high stress for me, because this is my first real training operation back from ship since I've been, you know, taking care of my son. So this is my first training operation with him. And they've been training so much stuff while I've been gone, you know? This is, you know, it's the initial part of deployment where everyone's doing hip hop classes. We're all doing drills. I missed all of that. I missed everything. I didn't know anything when I got back. They were on an entirely different level when I hit there. And I'll, I'm freely going to admit that. But it's my first training op. I'm stressed to the max, trying to just perform, trying to do anything that isn't retarded. And, you know, how that always goes. So I didn't, when I'm stressed, I just, I just, I just don't poop at all. Like I just hold everything in. I'm just like, go, 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 go. You know, when we, when it's over, it's over. But eventually I reached the max at like day three. And uh, I could tell I was going to need to check my back blast for this one. And we got bogged down. And I was like, this is my chance. So I jumped out. I grabbed my wet wipes because I was a smart marine. I brought wet wipes, wet wipes to the field. I grabbed my like quarter pound bag of wet wipes, ran into the bushes. I dropped trial man. And as soon as I reached that critical axis, boom, everything came out. The whole bush was just brown. <laughs> it was so bad. The cleanup was even worse, man. And finally, I got back to the vehicle and they were just, you know, finishing up, rigging up everything to pour out. So I helped out. I felt so good. I felt so light, so relieved. I felt like enraptured. And uh, <laughs> I just remember saying right before I let it all go, I was like, back blast all secure. <laughs> that was the funniest thing that happened there. Um, the Warriors night that they referred to. Happened right after we went to the to the ocean. The ocean there in Portugal was a different kind of wonderful, just a different kind. The sand was like walking on a mattress. It really was just soft, so wonderful. It got freaking everywhere though. When we got into the water, I probably could have cut glass with my nipples because of how cold it was. Just freezing, freezing cold, man. We we're all running around in our underwear, just splashing each other like ah. Like a bunch of little schoolgirls had a great time, man. And then we came back, you know, dried ourselves off, ran back up the road, went to the Warriors Night, dug a pit, you know, I had like one beer a piece, and it was warm. So it wasn't like it was good or anything, but it was so much different than what we've had so far. And then we went to Port in Portugal, and Portuguese green wine is remarkable. It's like Sprite, but alcoholic, and I loved it. And, uh, whoo, that was a rough night. That was that night everybody referred to, you know, like, you know, Waylon was like screaming and it was like hell outside. Yeah, I was out there screaming as well. I remember uh, I let loose in the bathroom, I threw up and got everything out, cleaned myself up, walked back inside. I was like, hey, Greg, how are you doing? He's like, I'm good, Fritch. How are you? I was like, oh, great. And I went to bed and I woke up the next day and felt like death. So Portugal was really nice. The Marines there were awesome. From Portugal, I don't remember what transits we went through. Hermuz, 
straight of who's after Portugal probably would have been Gibraltar. Gibraltar, yeah. Going into the mid. And then I remember that one being pretty pretty uneventful in terms of, you know, seeing stuff. When we went through and I only remember this because it was so uncomfortable, but when we went through Egypt, that was a little straight through Egypt. It was very tight. And it was already, you know, very stinky there. But the wind was from our fore to the aft. And the big exhaust would come down and waft right into our faces. We just got sick up in the turret. And of course, it already stunk from it just being Egypt. It's a terrible experience. I hated, I hated that straight transit because it was just so hot. And then the exhaust was coming from the engine of the ship and wafting right into it. So that was hotter and stinkier. It was just nasty. Gibraltar, yeah, I don't remember much from that at all. I had a bunch of photos from everything on my old iPhone 8. And then my iPhone 8, something happened to it. And I lost almost every photograph I've taken. Broke my heart. But, you know, life happens. Got to move on with it. Um, so I could have given you accurate dates on everything, but because of the photographs, but I just didn't have them. I think from Portugal, we went to, was it Bahrain or Jordan or something like that? It was Jordan. I think no, it was Greece. It was Greece. Yeah. Greece and Crete. Yeah, yeah. The time in Greece and Crete was great. I loved it. The water was just remarkable. Pretty sure that's where they let us swim. The swim was great. There's lionfish down below us, so that was kind of cool to see. We didn't really do any training there. Just kind of made port and had a fun time. I walked the uh I walked through that canyon with Landon and Waylon or and uh, that was pretty fun. Had some gelato down down in town. Ate lamb. It was a really fun time. Brought a bunch of honey and spices home for the wife and my mom. She's a big. She likes you no know, exotic honeys and stuff. Weird thing, but she does. Yeah, I loved Crete in Greece because it wasn't like crazy hot. But Bahrain, I hated Bahrain. Bahrain was like being in the devil's armpit. I remember hearing this from I think it was my dad or someone else. But Bahrain is a man-built island, and the Islamic representatives go there to practice their debauchery because Allah cannot see a place not built by Allah in their mind. So they'll go there and gamble and, you know, do drugs and all sort of stuff. And it's okay because Allah cannot see it, so you just repent and then you're good, whatever they do. So you'd see a lot of weird people there, like, that person looks important. Why are they going into a casino? The base there was nice. AC was wonderful, so it was kind of like you get out of the vehicle, out of the, out of the uh, ship, and you're just like, eh, eh, I don't want my, any of my bodily parts to touch one another because as soon as I do, I'm gonna start sweating and then I'm, I'm dead. But it didn't matter; you just started sweating instantly. It was like opening an oven, a wet, stinky oven. The bar was pretty nice in terms of like the PX and the base was pretty neat too. Watch some videos or some uh, movies with Greg and, and Mike. I remember being on truck watching Bahrain, and I just had a curiosity. My two-hour truck watch, it's like, how big of a puddle of sweat can I make just by walking back and forth? And so I walked back and forth about a 10-yard span, talking to my wife, my sister, and my mom, and my dad on the phone. At the end of that two hours, it was just a trench of sweat. There's nothing you can do about it. And it was pitch black outside. You know, it's, it's dark. And just walking, I was dying of, of you know, heat. Going through the nastier part of the Mediterranean, you could see the oil rigs burning oil burning their flag off in the distance. 
We got to Jordan. Jordan was probably the worst feel off I've ever done in my life. Just disappointment on disappointment. I can't remember like any specific stuff. It was just like not hearing a radio communication and somebody getting angry at me for not hearing it, you know, because we couldn't hear it because we we're too far in the valley. Pulling up a little bit too far on an SGZ or whatever. Freaking really a frustrating field off for me at least. And we had this moron grab, it was like a saw scaled viper or something with his bare hands and threw it into a water bottle. Absolute idiot. Just like had no clue that it could have killed him. Grabbed the viper and put it in a bottle. I was like, here you go, look at this. He's like, you idiot. We spent so much time on the uh, ammo dump there that our doc and Millette, our engineer or mechanic, had this system where Millette would grab a rock from sand and put it on a bigger rock. And Doc would grab a bigger rock, smash the little rock on the bigger rock. And then Millette would scrape it off, put another one there, crack, scrape it off, put another one there, crack. And it would just do that for literal hours. And then when we were guarding the front gates of the training area, there was a little portage on there. And poor McCall was out there with me. And of course, I was antagonistic as hell because I was bored. When McCall went to take a, a dump in the portage on, I just grabbed as many big rocks as I could and just hurled them at the portage on just as many times as I could before he got done, you know, pooping. And then, of course, he let me have it when he got back. <laughs> Honestly, what he should have done was just grabbed a handful of the doo-doo and whipped it my way. So... Yeah, we got up to our own shenanigans out there. Hated, 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 hated Jordan. Uh, that was Cap, Camp Titan, I believe, was the name. Chowha was great. The hummus was remarkable. I loved the hummus there. The food was pretty good. The little pastries they had were awesome. The coffee pastries and all that. Leaving Jordan, that was when we went through the Strait of Hormuz, I believe. And uh, that was a little tense, to be honest. It was pretty tense. Being in the optic. Looking at all the vessels, seeing everything. There was one point where a uh, this weird yacht-looking boat came up, and uh, they actually had us like orient towards it and see the barrels up and everything because they were a little worried about it. But that was about it. That straight was fairly, you know, straightforward. Where else? Where else? Okay, I think that's when we went to Kuwait. They've all told you about the Elkak ride or whatever it was. Yeah, how horrible that was. 18 people in 27 minutes. That's how hot it was in there. 27 minutes of movement and 18 people heat cased. It was horrible. I was so hot that I had the urge of panic. You ever just like, you're so uncomfortable, you're like, you feel like screaming and running. That's what I felt like. That's how uncomfortably hot it was, how painful it was. My clothes burnt my skin from the sun. It was just so hot. And I was like, this is going to be miserable. I'm going to hate Kuwait. I'm going to hate Kuwait so much. I hate this place already. We got off and I was like, oh, thank God, we're off the boats. Why isn't it cooler? It should be cooler. We're next to the beach. It should be cooler down. We're like, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. Um, and finally, the buses rolled up and they had a little bit of AC. And of course, we were, you know, sucking on the AC like crack addicts. Got on the buses. We went down to Al Jabber. I love the way, who was it that was pronouncing it, Al Jaber? Oh, I can't remember his name. She's always saying it, Al Jaber. It's hilarious. Um, but Al Jaber was pretty, was pretty sick, honestly. Hot as hell. I think the hottest day there, I wrote it down on my notes somewhere, it was 137 degrees. And it was the hottest day, according to Google at that time. It's probably not true anymore, but it was the hottest day for 2021 in the world. And you open up the door, it hits you in the face, 
and just like, why is it spicy? <laughs> you just shrivel, you just shrivel like a raisin. But we would just quickly but not aggressively move to our next waypoint just to avoid as much sweat as possible. And luckily, the rooms we were in were wonderful. The beds were bigger than on ship, which was great. More comfortable, too. The AC was just kicking. Oh my gosh, the AC units in there were freaking awesome. So we could get it actually pretty cool in there, and you could like go down to like your, uh, you know, like, go down to like your skivvy and just get underneath the covers and snuggle up. Such a nice feeling. The chow hall, like everyone said, was actually really good. We didn't like the fish because the fish was always, you know, freeze dried and horrible. The fat snacks kind of tore into those after Afghanistan more. So the base theater was really nice. Spent a lot of time there. We watched Suicide Squad. For the first time at that base, it was great. Training there was kind of weird. You know, we were kind of going between buildings, clearing our sectors, and operating as a fire team, handing arm signals, all that stuff. It was really nice to finally get into the groove with something, especially with the guys. You know, I felt like I was kind of catching on, getting it. I know that was really late in the game to be catching on and getting it, but I finally felt like, hey, I'm not really having to try. I'm just getting it now. So that was important to me. And uh, yeah, I remember sitting down with the 240, and Sam was so hot, it burnt the tip of my dick, and I had blisters on the tip of my dick. I'm not even kidding you. I'm not even, not even the slightest bit. I burnt the tip of my dick, and uh, that was so painful for like four days. <laughs> Bro, Kuwait can just go and fall off the face of the earth, man. I don't like that place at all. That is so unfortunate. Blisters on my elbows. Burn marks on my belly, on my knees, on my thighs, and of course, my good old tally whacker. I had to take cold showers because it just couldn't, you know, so painful. But, you know, I kind of prided myself for sitting there and bearing through the pain when we were sitting there, and, you know, watching our center fire. And I think that the Air Force guys kind of got a kick out of this, you know, like, bang, bang, contact left, contact left, bang, 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 reloading. All that other weird stuff we were doing in the heat, in the heat of the day, 120, 130 degrees. Complete idiots, but we were having a blast. We started hearing grumblings that Afghanistan was 100% going to happen. And then we heard it was like a 50% chance. Then it was like 100%. And then it was like 20%. Then it was like 100%. And then it was like 10%. And it just back and forth like a ping pong ball. Now, it's kind of the point where I intended upon introducing Gunny Cap. Because, yeah, crackhead supreme. Just wired. I have no other way of explaining it. He was like a crackhead. I loved the guy so much. 1,000% focus. It was like a hunting dog. 1,000% focus. Aggressive. He'd push your shit in one second, and then he'd grab you by the shoulder and build you back up to make you feel like you were Captain America the next second. The guy had leadership down. Knew his stuff back to front. Five ways to Sunday. He just, I was, I was a good infantry marine, a really good infantry marine, still is. He was on us to keep tight on everything. You know, practice your nine lines, write this down, write that down, practice your golf fires. He kept us tight. He kept the morale up, kept the heads on the swivel. And right at the point where everyone was getting atrophied by the amount of intensity he was throwing at us about it, Afghanistan, it happened. We got the call. Right at the point where everybody was like, it's never going to happen. We, you know, it happened. And we went from Al Jabber to Ali Al Salim. And at Ali Al Salim, we saw the videos of people falling from 
the aircraft. And at first, you know, not thinking about it, I was like, what idiots? Why would you do that? That's so stupid. I was virgin to the horrors of mankind. And so I had no pity. When we kind of figured out we were getting on a plane the next day there in Aliyah Saleem, it just hit me one night and I had to leave the guys for a bit and just go behind the buildings. And I was just crippled with fear. And it wasn't that I was afraid I was going to die. I just want to be clear on that. I was afraid that should I die, Elisa would take it to harm. I was really afraid of that because I love Elisa with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul. I love her very much. And the last thing I wanted was for her to hear that word. And I had nightmares of her screaming, having heard that I, you know, was, you know, uh, KIA or something. It was a little boy, you know, he would never remember my face. And the tragedy of that kind of hit me that night. That was when I really sobered up. The humor to mask the stress wasn't enough anymore. And I called my dad and I was like, dad, how did you do this? How did you get through this? Because he's, I mean, my dad, just Lieutenant Colonel Greg Fritch, formerly enlisted, went warrant officer, officer, retired Lieutenant Colonel, three combat deployments. He won't admit it. That guy's got some scalps on his belt. And I looked up to him a lot. I didn't know what to do. I was so petrified. I didn't know how to handle this. I was like, I have to go in front of my Marines and, and look, okay, I'm a, I'm a freaking corporal of Marines. I got to be, I can't be this little, this little bitch. I got to be composed. I called him and he said, Greg, God's going to take care of you, Lisa. He's going to take care of you. He's going to take care of Greg. We'll take care of her while she's here. You have done well to set her up. She's going to be taken care of. And that gave me so much peace. I knew it was true already, but to hear it from him, somebody I knew had done this before, left me and my brother and my sisters and my mother to go fight another man's war. Forgive the phrasing there, but it's really what it feels like when you're about to go and do it. And why the hell am I even doing this now? Like, oh my God. <laughs> but once I got that, I feel like I really cleared up a little bit in my head, at least. I'm like, all right, cool. Gears together. Batteries are accounted for. Freaking got my hollow points loaded up. We good. Checking all the mags, making sure I've got, you know, just one minus on every mag so that I'm not, you know, having trouble with reloads and stuff, technical things, you know, covering all my technicals, kind of locked in, but I was still just dazed a little bit. We uh, got on the plane. I remember the coolest memory before we left Ali Asaleen was pissing with all the guys as the plane that we were about to ride to Afghanistan landed. We were pissing off the uh, the tarmac there because there's a little staging area for us in the tarmac, and then we went to the edge of the tarmac, and there was a little berm there, and we pissed off the berm, and then our plane came, came down. I never saw the ambulance and the crew cleaning the body out of the landing gear, but I heard of it. I heard rumors that it happened. I just didn't, I don't know why, but I never saw it. I remember loading up onto the aircraft, took forever. I remember Gunny Cap, all right, we need to fit 70 more Marines in here. When I say squeeze, you all squeeze in there and get a little bit tighter now. And we just we'd say three, two, one, squeeze, and no one removed the freaking muscle. We were just like, no, we're tight, we're good. Um, but eventually we all kind of squeezed in there and we got everybody in and poor Landon was behind me, I think. And 
my fat ass was up against him and my legs were crushed underneath somebody else. And this was the strangest sensation, the most miserable ride of my life. Seven or six hours to Qatar. Hot as hell until the first hour. And then from like my rib cage up, I was freezing to death. And then from my rib cage down, I was boiling alive. Oddest sensation in my life. And I think that some guys were pissing themselves because they couldn't get up. They couldn't get up and they couldn't get to the bathroom because there's only one bathroom. Because it just started to smell like ammonia in there. Um, Might have been the sweat. But there was so much sweat that it was running down the floor of the C-130 like a little creek every time we hit an incline. We, We landed in Qatar. Some people were like, I'm not getting up, man. This is so, so shitty. I'm not going to you know, lose my spot or whatever. I was like, I got to pee, man. There's no way. I got up. I ran out. I ran down the flight line. I got to the side. I peed. I ran back. I got down. I was like, okay, cool. Let's go. We sat there for like an hour. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was so miffed. I could have sat out there and like chilled out for a minute. Shot the shit with Greg or with Mike. Like an idiot, I got staged up again. I didn't want to inconvenience everybody else by getting back up. So we got back up. We flew into Afghanistan. I think it was either Gunny Cap or First Sergeant Young. Got up on the containers and he was like, he was like saying something and putting his hands up. Like you could tell he was probably screaming at us like five minutes till landing or five minutes till something like that. Nobody understood what he was saying. But then from like five went to 10 and I was like, that's the wrong way. I, I mean, I, I know math for Marines, but that's the wrong way. And it was because, you know, we were obviously having tarmac issues, i.e. people on the tarmac. So, yeah, just like everyone else, I thought we were about to just get absolutely annihilated by a zombie horde of, you know, desperate Afghanis jumping into our landing gear and assaulting us with their exorbitant amount of clothes that they just had to pack. But no, it was clear. Gunny Cap got up, up on there and he was just poised up with his rifle and, oh shit, there's nothing there. So they took off the uh, the big old containers. They got everything unloaded. We went outside. We created a perimeter. Kind of shuffled off over to the flags. I remember, yeah, I'm not going to let Greg get away with this one. He lost the compass. I think it was a compass. And uh, when we were doing accountability, so that was like, how many compasses? Like one, two, three, four. Waylon. Oh, yep. Compasses, one, two, three. It wasn't a fourth. So Greg had to run back and he found it luckily came back and then we were you know we were uh we were all up we went to our barracks building um that we we're gonna stay at and it was actually kind of like a semi-decent area some of the contractors had been living there earlier before us so they had left some like ramen and stuff behind so once we got set up a lot of people tried to go to sleep but you know we ransacked the place for food because we knew that was going to be i don't know how but we knew it was going to be an issue later on gunshots screaming smell of cs gas these are all kind of things that i remember vaguely I remember looking through my nods and seeing, you know, tracers up in the sky and lasers up in the sky and everything. It was like, through nods, it looked like, you know, Battlefield 2024 was freaking cool, or 2042. And, but to the naked eye, it was just like, you know, fairly tame. The first night that we did patrols, we, I was when we witnessed the two people rounded up by the uh, ANA. Now, I believe I was on a thermal. And I don't know if it was me or somebody else who spotted them. We shifted the whole line down to where we could see them. And they hid for a minute. After a while, they came back out. And we called in on the radio, like, yeah, there's two people here. And 
throw like hawks. The ANA just dove in in their little hiluxes and just wrapped those two people up. I've never seen two people beat so badly in my life. It's like they wanted to save themselves a bullet. They dragged him. Uh, the guy was kind of limp. The lady was kicking and screaming. They pulled him behind the building and heard some pops. They came out like high-fiving and like, ah, ha, ha. It's like, you know, pretty jovial body language on the thermals. We couldn't hear anything aside from the gunshots. Obviously, we were quite proud of what they'd done. It's two civilians, man. They just wanted to get out. I thought I was going to do a good thing and like further the security, but I just did something that caused the death of a man and his wife. I assumed it was a man and female just because she was wearing a head covering and he wasn't. So the first thing that I did in Afghanistan resulted in the death of two people. And um, stayed out there for a while. Something else happened. I remember just screaming in the back of the Vic, just, what the fuck? All the desensitization that they do for you and post-deployment, no. It just doesn't do it justice. The reality of it. Those are just videos, man. We um we got back to the barracks, got like an hour or two sleep, sun came up, we got on our feet, grabbed our gear, we went to the north gate. It was so confusing getting there, it was like going through a cattle, like a cattle trench. It's weird. We got there and went up to the front of the north gate. And I remember the first thing and I was like, holy shit, was a German soldier, kind of a plumper guy, um, red beard. Looked like he might have been a happy guy otherwise. Just sobbing his eyes out. Sobbing his eyes out. Drenched in sweat. You know, just kind of like limping back to one of the Humvees. Just leaned up against the wall and just started crying. And I was like, no, I was kind of almost deafened by the, the roar of people screaming and yelling and gunfire from the A&A shooting up into the air and shooting towards us for some god-awful reason. Just being negligent with their crowd control. But I saw him just crying there and I was like, the only thought, the only word that could come to my mind to quantify the experiences that we were about to come in contact with was travesty. And I wouldn't just say tragedy because that's just like an individual thing. The whole, the whole top to bottom was a travesty. We uh, started echeloning people back. We built a human wall because so, we didn't have CY or anything to bring people and there was a divide there where if you had papers, you went through the processing station. If you didn't have papers, you were funneled back out. I grabbed this lady, 30s or 40s. She had like six kids. She was missing her son and she was crying because she couldn't find her son. So I went up towards the front of the gate. Eventually I found the son. It's like an hour of searching like for this kid. Thank God. Because after that night, I was like, Lord, please let me do something good. God, please let me do something good. Let me help somebody. And I found the kid. And then I brought her and the kids. I was like, such a good win, man. I brought her and the kids to the processing station. I was like, all right, get your papers. Her husband was still in the crowd. And he had the papers. It's probably a likely story. She probably never, ever had the papers or anything. But 
that's what she gave us. And I believed it because what else was I going to believe? And I was like, that's okay. Just winning the sidelines. But I started getting bitched at, like people just saying over and over again, like, no, just get her the hell out of here. She's taking up space. The kids and all, and they were crying and adding to the chaos. And eventually I just kind of caved to the pressure, if I'm being honest. It's like, fine, all right. Just get her, get her to the funnel out. And so I'd spend an hour plus trying to find this little kid, this innocent child, and give him to his mother. And his sisters and her toddler was there in her arms. And then I had to send her back out. And there was there was a tally just waiting for him. And they grabbed him and I never saw him again. So action number two. I can only imagine resulted in the death of two, you know, not two, but like seven more people. Six of which were just kids. A wife waiting for her husband, a husband who was never going to see her again. Never know what happened to her. And if he ever did, it's even worse. Fucking Marine handed her off to the Taliban. That just messed with me. I got really angry after that. Really angry. And then the army showed up. Some green in the gills lieutenant showed up with his fire team or squad or whatever. And I was like, guys, we need you up to the front, up the front of the gate. They need, they need you guys bad. They need you real bad. They're like, no, we're, we're staying out down here. We're, we're on ours, just like, like stand in a screening position, like just right here, so you know people can like funnel through. It's like, sir, there are already Marines here. They're taking that post that have served up there now. They're almost dead. Like, we need you up there. It's like, no, 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 we're, we're not providing support for the gate. We're only going to sit right here. And I, I argued with it for a minute. And eventually, I was just like, you know what, sir, fuck you. And I walked off. And so that was my first experience with the army there. I'm, so, I'm like, you know, it's, the, it's like what, the 82nd or the 81st or, you know, the 80 worst or whatever. They're supposed to be like, you know, a godsend. And here they are just freaking standing around, literally just standing there doing nothing special. And we've got fighting, literally fighting people, muzzle thumping dudes, just to get some semblance of order. And the A&A are just like a constant pressure of, you know, a harassment, keeping the chaos going, you know, it's like a, you know, an internal cycle. And that was day one. Came back, got in our vehicles, went on some patrol, tried to find some food, tried to find some water. Wasn't much of anything left around. Did our first uh, 24 hour stint on the East Gate. That was awful. Coming into the nighttime, this is where I broke down. Went to uh, went to the gate and I was grabbing people through, and I was we were so tired that we all just went you know unless you were up in front of the gate you just took all your flak and everything off. So I was booty and you know frog top with a Ryan rifle, and this woman, same size build, basic look of my wife Elisa, just collapsed from the gate into the holding area, just passed out right there, and nobody grabbed her. And I was just like looking at this. I thought for a second, I was like, wow, that's a corpse. <laughs> it looked just like Elisa's same dark curly hair, same build, hands were so similar. And it was just an eerie moment. And it felt like I was staring at her for hours, but it had only been like a second. And I reached down and I grabbed her 
And I picked her up and she was limp. And I remember the feeling of her body limp in my arms. Um, so similar to when my sister got into a crash and uh, she had been passed out for seven minutes without air because the car went on top of her and her body was like, you know, her body was dead. She was, you know, by all good means, you know, my older sister Savannah was dead. So I remember what that felt like and that's what she felt like. And it was kind of like a weird traumatic moment. And uh, I brought her back, kind of, you know, just rubbed her shoulders, did a sternum rub, got her back into it, pulled off some of her like outer garments so that I didn't get them wet because it was about to get really freaking cold that night. And I like spritzed some of my camelback onto like her neck and chest and forehead to kind of cool, cool her down because she was just red from exertion. And uh, she came to, gave her some of the water and she was just freaked out at first. She just was pushing away from me and I just, you know, gave her a little bit of space. She was freaked out. She thought I was going to hurt her or something. But I, you know, offered her food and everything. She kind of got the idea after a minute. And uh, I picked her up. She wanted her mom and her grandma to get through, and eventually they did. I brought them all to the female screening area, and uh, that was it, man. I stumbled over to the jail TV, kind of put my hand on the tire. I went down on one knee. I just cried. I cried for 10, 15 minutes. My face was numb. I got out of my system. Pulled myself up on my bootstraps and kept going. The crowd is not going anywhere anytime soon. And uh, that was just one. And I remember thinking that that was taxing. That was hard. And I'm going to do this how many thousands more times? We uh, got a pretty decent system set up that night in terms of screening. I remember somebody there, some, one of the guys from LAR, I think it was a friend of mine. His rifle, he was slung, and he was working hard, man. He was working real hard. But somehow his rifle safety had come off, and it it discharged. It got caught in his belt as it was slung over him because he was working with his hands. It was slung over him. It discharged into the ground, and that made me, that freaked me out because we hadn't had any, you know, crowd control rounds go off behind our gate yet. And I just thought, crap, somebody just set off a vest. And I don't know why I thought that right away because it was just a kind of shot. And they're screaming from the female tent for a second. And I like ran over there and out comes this dude and he's just pissed. It wasn't his fault, you know, like you're not going to check your rifle every, you know, 13 seconds after you're working. Okay, see, this is on. Okay, so you're not going to do that. And somehow like luck just played out to where it ended. But nobody got hurt. Thank God. After our shift there, we had a pretty good system set up. Plenty more heart-wrenching stuff happened, but, you know, who's got the time for that? We came back. We did some more patrols. I remember, I don't know who alluded to this, but it was really fun. We did some kind of like room clearing on the ground with our M4s, like actual grunt shifts, cool stuff, trying to find squirters that had run into the quad cons there. And we found all kinds of stuff, man. We found Azerbaijani uniforms. We found Pakistani uniforms. We freaking found, you know, like a massive shipment of COVID testing kits. Just all kinds of weird stuff in these shipping containers. We didn't find any people. You were clearing the whole stuff and following the vehicles the whole way, doing the stuff we literally trained to do. And it felt like a, felt like a, you know, training operation. I'll do, you know, all honesty out there. Like it just felt like we were training, but there was, you know, there was a, there was a little bit of a threat there. Like, you know, could, could be a dude with an AK around the next corner. So we were on our toes. Remember the snipers taking over a, uh, a watch post in a 
big old tower that was up there near the industrial area. Industrial area, sorry. Then, um, yeah, we finished that that period. We came back. We slept for like I think four hours or so. Found some food, and me and Zach, me and Zachary, uh, shot. We grabbed some ramen and some MRE heater kits, and we cooked ramen inside of the MRE heater kit, and it actually worked. It was so cool. Um, we could get like two different ramen packets done with one heater. We got like a system set up. Super neat. There's like soy sauce there and hot sauce packets from like the Panda Express that we've been raided like a couple days ago. The contractors brought it there before they left and left it there. So that was just like, that was bomber. This is kind of when we were realizing like water's getting scarce. Next time we went to the gate, Charlie Company had had it. And they screwed up the whole system, man. They screwed everything up. It was just miserable. Mass chaos, people jumping fences. Nobody understood how anything worked. They left behind riot shields and all kinds of stuff. And I was just upset with with them. But we finally got order in place. And I remember this is kind of one of those moments where I kind of had a kind of a fright, frightening moment about myself. A bunch of Marines were rebuilding a barricaded area. And I don't know, about 130, 150 people were trying to get into that area. But they had to stay in that one holding spot. And they kept trying to bum rush it. And as we would grab the fence, pull it over, they'd try to run through. And we couldn't have them running through because they would. They were unscreened, and we didn't want them intermingling with everybody who'd already been searched. And uh, there was this one old dude that just would not listen. I know he understood me. I freaking know. You, you can see it in a person's eyes, and they're like, I understand what you're saying, but I'm going to pretend that I don't. And there's only, there's only so many people in this world that can see a six foot three, 220-pound Marine in full combat gear point a rifle at you and say stop there's only like a handful of people in the whole world that won't and he was one of them so that didn't make me very pleased and i was the only guy holding off everybody else from coming into this area while they rebuilt the fence so i was in this holding area holding off this horde of people and they were like trying to sneak past me it was like it was like playing tag with kids you know it's kind of weird but i was just getting angry i wasn't like you know it wasn't it wasn't funny at all so i was just getting angry i was hot and i was miserable and i was dehydrated and hungry and tired and i whipped off my kevlar and i heard him behind me trying to sneak past and i whirled around it and i cracked that guy in the head and i remember just seeing him wilt he wilted i hit him right in the, the tip of his forehead right there the skin just kind of peeled back no blood at first he just wilted and i hit him with the the mount of my kevlar and i remember someone saw me and just Fritz, what the fuck? And these are the same guys, you know, who were struggling to keep these people back just 10 minutes earlier. And they had only made that progress because I was keeping back the crowd. And so I was out there doing what I thought was, you know, fairly necessary evil, keeping back these people so that we didn't have the risk of a suicide bomber. And I had this great eternal, you know, justification for me sitting there and doing this. And it really was helping. But I just remember thinking, like, who the fuck are you to say, Fritz, what the fuck? As I'm out here enabling you to put that fence back up and, you know, I hit this guy. Yeah, I hit him. Yeah, he's he's knocked out. He's down. But no one else got up after that. And it kind of clicked with me. I was like, these people really don't care about anything but violence. They don't. They don't care about what you say. They don't care about what they hear. They don't care about what you think. They don't care about what you have. Until you show something 
that is violent, that is aggressive, they will not listen. Once you do, though, they will. And one of the scariest things that I started wrestling with was the fact that I was really good at that. I was really good at that violence. And further than that, out of my anger or maybe the fear or some other emotion, I, to a degree, enjoyed it because I really didn't like these people because I was afraid and that fear made me angry and that anger made me hate and that hate spiraled me into just this maddening place. And this is just me trying to be as honest as possible, man. Like you can cut some of this out because it makes me sound like an absolute monster and psychologically it's a little bit scary, but that's really where I was at. I was terrified for my life 24 seven because there's, there's potential suicide bombers everywhere. There's military aged males everywhere. The Azerbaijanis lost a PKM and it was somewhere in the crowd. I was terrified. I think a lot of people were. And in that moment, all of my emotions kind of culminated when I hit that guy. And uh, hearing that, that guy just yelled back at me. He was just like, you know what? Fine. And I just left. I walked somewhere else and then they had to fight with a horde after that. A good story. I won't say his last name because I don't want him to be at risk of anything, but Samir. Samir was an interpreter for us and a really good man with some of his relatives there, some ladies, and he was begging to be let out. He just let me go back. The Taliban know me. They know me. They'll kill me better than being stuck here. It's like day four. It's freezing cold at night. He was shivering. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was so miserable. He just wanted to die. He was just crying, earnestly crying. And I walked up to him and I talked to him for like an hour, calming him down, listening to him. It felt good to be human again. I brought him some MRA heaters, taught him how to use them properly. I filled them with water so that they were warm because he didn't have water. And uh, later on, in Afghanistan, he gave me his uh, his Instagram and Facebook, and I still talk to him today on Facebook. He just sent me this past anniversary for it. He sent me his happy anniversary to becoming my brother, and that was really, really, it was really good. Another good story, and this goes back to uh, Gregory, my son. I um, We had this wall that was uh, kind of always shaded, and the guys, I hated the guys for this, I hated the guys, stupid Afghani dudes, would push the women off the wall and sit in the shade while the women sweltered in the heat. Just scum of the earth stuff, you know? And uh, this chick had looked like a newborn baby. And the baby was screaming, but it wasn't making any noise. Now, you've probably heard kids scream, like little babies, infants. Their vocal cords aren't meant to break. This baby had been screaming so long and so hard, its vocal cords weren't making any more noise. And uh, that blew me away, because I remember my son just coming out with those pipes, man, just screaming. Um, <laughs> I was like, and he would go for a while, and I was like, wow, nothing could make this stop. 
But this baby had stopped screaming because her voice couldn't carry anymore. And the mother was there. The baby was beet red, obviously about to heat case. And the mother was just wilting in the heat, you know, dead in the eyes, barely upright. The father was, you know, distraught as well. I ran in there. It's just a weird moment. We weren't supposed to, but I, I climbed over the barbed wire. Two rolls of barbed wire with one on top. I went over it, tore the diggings out of my camis, ripped a huge hole in my glove, cut my hand down, still got a scar from that, grabbed her, picked her up, went back over the barbed wire with her there, tore my legs apart, got her into the shade, and uh, pulled the clothes off the baby because she was, you know, bundled up. Pulled the clothes off the baby, put the clothes to the side, so it was just like, you know, her actual, like, like shirt, a little dress or whatever, and kind of wetted some of that down with my camelback. And my camelback was drying out real freaking quick. I hate, I was I was on a schedule like every six hours I'd take a, a sip and that's how much I had left. Like I was like, take a wig and then just run. I had pissed in like two days. So I poured some on this little baby, started rubbing her skin to try to spread it around and cool her down. I saw the redness evaporate off of her face and then she finally calmed down a little bit. And it just felt so good. Felt so good to a win, a win, yes, thank you, Lord, a finally a win. <laughs> and uh, the uh, the mother, she she couldn't feed the baby because she was under so much stress and she hadn't had anything to eat and she was dehydrated. So I gave her, I basically grabbed my camelback, pulled it out, I lifted it upside down, just squeezed with everything I had just to get everything out of there as I could. I gave her the last of the camelback, and I was, I, I remember thinking, well, this is really gonna suck later on today it was midday we still had the rest of the day to go it's like this is gonna suck i'm gonna be thirsty but she drank and she ate and i pulled her back a few more feet to where there's a little enclave there to where she's kind of protected from different directions and i stood with a, a riot shield in front of her so the crowd couldn't see her because they're very concerned about modesty there you know she opened up fed the baby and finally she lactated the baby latched the baby Got some food. Baby finally just passed out. And I was so, so happy. But I was so tired that I couldn't really feel how happy I was at the time. So that was a good story. And I was like, wow, that was such a cool thing. But then, of course, I see one of our docs, you know, the big brawl dude that everyone was talking about, the, the giant running back and forth, delivering babies, getting powdered milk and everything. I'm like, that guy's a real, that guy's a real freaking hero right there. Absolute, undeniable, that's a hero huge respect for him and the female docs that were out there too thank god they were there oh my goodness thank god they were there shot told you about this story but just a little backstory into that when mary and i first secured the fence line along the bus route we had three interpreters up and down the way and we would run down and tell the interpreters to say certain things and, and the interpreters taught us how to say sit down it was in dari it was shatashe and in I think it was either Farsi or Pashtu. Sit down was uh, Bishane. So Bishane or Shatashe. And that's how you told them to sit down. And I botched it up. Okay. Like I botched up the pronunciation or the inflection or whatever the hell. Because all the kids would laugh at me and the dudes would be like, huh, huh, huh. you don't think it right. And I would, you know, point my gun at them and be like, sit down. And then be, oh, 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 that's what you meant. <laughs> One of the interpreters, just slime of the earth, you know, like in, in, uh, action movies where you see the slimy evil dude and he's got like slicked back greasy hair and he's got that weird big fat double chin and he just looks like you know 
the curmudgeonly nasty. He's the bad guy, you know? He was one of those guys, one of our interpreters. And Samir, who I didn't know who he was at the time, I found out later. Samir walks up to me. No idea who Samir is. He goes, I missed the fridge. And I was like, how the hell do you know my name? He goes, your name tape, it's on your butt. And I was like, oh, okay, I got, yeah, okay, yeah. He's like, he is, uh, he, he's telling the, you know, the crowd the, all these things, they're, they're not true, they're not good. He's, he's saying they have to stay here and, and um, he will leave and they can't leave until he does and some, some other stuff like that. But he was causing a lot of unrest, essentially what Samir was getting to. And I didn't want to act rashly, so I got two more interpreters to corroborate the story. And you just kind of listen, figure out what the guy was saying, get close enough to hear what he was saying, but not close enough to be suspicious. And sure enough, everyone said the same thing. And I got so mad. There's only one person in this world that I've wanted to die to this day, that I've wanted to kill, that I've wanted that opportunity to kill a person. It was him. And uh, I remember just walking up to him. I was like, hey, man, you doing all right? And he's like, I, yes, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And I said, okay, that's good. And so I grabbed him by his collar and I led him over this area where not a whole lot of people could really see me. And I had this big ass knife with me. It was like a 10 inch blade, badass knife stuff from tops, from tack tops knives. I pulled it out, I pressed against his belly and I was like, I've heard what you said to these people. Multiple interpreters have told me what you said to these people. You say one more word and I'll gut you. Don't you dare say another word. If I hear another word from you, anything, any language, I'll gut you. And he was just shocked. Fast forward the next day, the bus pulls up. And of course, a bunch of people bum rush the bus to try to get on there. And who do I see from the back of the crowd, push through the crowd, grab a random child from a mother and father, a girl. She had this, it was a, it was a pink, a pink top with like yellowish white flowers on it. Traumatized little girl. He just grabs her like the bad guy from a movie and just pushes through the crowd, holding her up. Please, please, me, my doctor, me, my doctor, we go. Please, please, let, let us through. And that's, that's that story Shot told you about where I got pissed off at a guy. and I grabbed him by like the scruff of his shirt right here. And I just football pushed the guy. I split this crowd of like 100 people right down the middle. And I shoved him into the sea wire. And I remember just stepping on him to push him as far into the sea wire as I could get him. I was like, this guy just doesn't get out. I just hope he's stuck there the rest of the time we're here. Like, stay there, dude. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> walked back to the truck and chaos continued. Um, glorious, glorious chaos, man. <sighs> Later on, I was trying to find this, uh, this, this family. They didn't speak Dari Fari or Pashtu. Nobody could understand what they were saying, but they had a picture of their son. And their son was three years old. And, um, his name was like Zikander or something like that. Consequently. I knew what the name Sikander meant because I read the biography on Alexander from when he conquered the Middle East and everything. And the name Sikander was to be, it's like a name of royalty. It would be like, you know, someone named their son George Washington or whatever. So I remembered that name and I was like, hey, that clicks. I got that. That's cool. I can find this kid. And uh, I searched. Six hours I searched. He's the day. Full kit. Taking every son, every boy, every little, every little man I could find six hours and eventually I, I was so desperate I went to the I went to the screening area where the ladies were and I was like please, please 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 take a second look at this photo have you seen this kid 
And the lady there's blonde female corpsman. She'd been with us the whole new good chick. She's like, listen, no idea where he is. We don't know what that kid looks like. We probably have seen him. We don't even remember. There's too many people here. Look in the orphan tent. He's made, he might be there. So I go to the orphan tent. And all the kids are terrified of me. Just, you know, frightfully terrified. But, you know, I offered them Skittles and little MRE snacks I had in my pocket. Eventually, I kind of got my chance to sift through them. And as I'm sitting there kind of caring to the kids because I wanted a human moment again like I had with Samir, I sort of just feel okay. And I always felt natural around. I always felt, you know, at home taking care of children, you know, whether it had been at my church or growing up with other families, kids. And just like that was the place where I, I flourished in taking care of, of younger of younger children. It's just like I always enjoyed being around me. I always enjoyed teaching them stuff, showing them things like, you know, salamanders and turtles and, you know, bugs and stuff, right? All the things that little kids are interested in. And uh, and I hear these two pops out of nowhere. It was like waking up. And they were pretty they were pretty loud. And they were right on the other side of the wall there. And the wind brought this billowing cloud of white smoke over the top of that partition. It's like a 12, 15-foot partition, concrete. And it hit me. And it was CS gas. And it went right into the orphan's tent. And it was built such that it was perpendicular to the wind. So the wind didn't flow through it. The wind flowed over it and then billowed inside and just circulated inside constantly with the same wind. And these kids just got smoked, absolutely gassed out. They were screeching and screaming and passing out. And the mothers and the old women that were taking care of them were passing out. Just horrible sound. Horrible sound. And I needed to figure out what the hell was going on because I heard screaming and, and a lot more banging and rustling across the way. So I started to break contact from there and I ran. And I remember stepping over children and, and women that were on the ground because I couldn't see anything. I remember just feeling bodies underneath me, limp bodies. And I, uh, everywhere I went, there was people on the ground. There's trash everywhere. And I just started running faster and faster and faster. Just so maybe if I, if I run fast enough, I won't realize what I'm stepping on. And I got to the other side, and finally it was like smoke was gone. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can barely see it. And I, as I opened up my eyes, I looked, and this horde of like 200 people had broken through the fence where the smoke had gone off. And uh, they had broken through the perimeter there. And everyone was trying to stop them from getting on the road, but they were on the road now. And they were just pushing back the Marines that were there. And, uh, Kind of similar to when I grabbed that guy and pushed through the crowd, I split through the crowd again. Just kind of ran my way through them. They're kind of frail human beings, the Afghanis. So I just cut right through them, got to the front, put my rifle perpendicular and just started shoving back. It's like shoveling dirt or snow or something, just pushing them back. Eventually got order, you know, renewed. Like who the, you know, who the fuck did that? Who the hell popped CS gas in a, in a holding area? Who did that? Turns out it was some Navy captain that ran up saw some marine get assaulted according to him and then ran off and the gas you know started filling out and uh from what i heard the guy got lit up and relieved from his post for that and uh a detail kind of showing the nature of these Afghani men they all weren't like this there were guys like samir there were guys like Mir, the bodybuilder he would interpret it for us there were guys you know like the husband of that wife that i helped out with her baby they were good dudes, solid human beings. 
but the absolute vast majority of them were just slime. And uh, this one guy grabbed a boy, a little boy, threw him on the barbed wire belly down, and walked over him so he didn't have to touch the barbed wire. How do you do that? I remember just thinking, how do you come to that in your life? How do you? Because as Americans, we're always taught, like, take care of the weak, take care of the children, take care of the women. At all costs, take care of them. But here it's like, hey, use that. That's a rug right there. How, how low do you think of other human beings that you have to use them as a rug? So that really impacted the way I thought about the Afghanis, seeing that. Yeah. Sorry, I got to clear my head for a second. Go ahead and ask a question if you want, man. No, I get it from, I get it from the other stories that I've heard. Just, uh, maybe it's part of me trying to put myself in a similar situation, questioning myself, but because I wasn't there or anything I do, it's just a freaking what if game. I can't. No, that pisses me off too. I can't. I mean, it pisses me off on a few different levels. Obviously on a human level, just human beings treating other human beings that way. And I, I talked about this with one of the other guys I interviewed, uh, probably with Lannon. I know I did with Waylon. And I think I did with one of uh, Sniper with 1-8 Forrest. Yeah. Just wish I would have had the idea to see it come and extend my contract in the two years and I would have been there with, with the LER guys. But it's also weird. Like, why would you want to be there yeah but just i remember that when i first started doing this back in october and i told uh when i told shot one i might as well shot the story i told somebody the story like i was watching the, that freaking documentary that hbo put out right after the first anniversary i remember seeing this clip of this i'm assuming it's a dude from 1a because he's wearing green camis just get just get pulled into the crowd and disappear and i had to just shut everything down for a little bit and i just sat there being extremely pissed off and just and he ate and to what you're saying earlier i don't think you're fucking i mean i don't think i don't think it's psychotic or monstrous some of stuff that you're talking about earlier i think the situation that y'all are in i don't Obviously, we always want to be better human beings. I personally can't see myself acting any differently. Some guy thinks he's being funny playing fuck fuck games. I'll lay him the fuck out. And I just. You want to be it, Captain America, man. You really do. Yeah, it's just, I don't know how to. I don't know. I feel like anything I say is just going to be stupid. It's weird. Because even on my end, I'm like, I feel stupid trying to justify what I did in whacking that guy or threatening the turp or, you know, even like shooting a warning shot or, you know, God forbid, pointing a killing weapon at somebody just to get him to sit down. It just feels like externally when I'm outside of it now, it's like even now, it's like, Lord, how did I do that? How do you how do you do that to another human being? But then I look at instances like that, I'm like, well, it's not as bad as they did. 
where does it start? You know, where does that yeah. descent, descent into madness, into moral corruption begin? And that's what hit me. I felt like my ethics and my morality had been violated. I felt like I had to sit there and watch the devil's handiwork. Like I was being forced to witness his design. And then forced furthermore to see what I became there. That moral injury is what I struggled with the most. And there was things that in terms of like PTSD and you know, the nightmares and the flinching and There was that stuff, it's natural. But the moral assault was just not even humbling. It was a violation. So there's, I had a friend, Cash. I don't know if you knew Cash from LAR. I love the guy a lot. This guy's on thing going to Texas now. When I got back, I was talking to him about it. He's like, man, I'm so sorry. I wish I was there. And I remember texting, he's like, no, you don't. You really don't. I don't wish I was there. And I'm glad you weren't. I'm really glad you weren't. The hardness of it was bearable. The morality of it was not. And it's like Miziak said, you look at something happy, you're like, shit, all right, let's keep going. I don't know, man, yeah, go ahead. There was... There was a mission to be accomplished. There was a thing to be done. And because of the circumstances which had been laid out well before y'all ever got there, mm -hmm. certain things needed to be done in order to accomplish that mission that ideally would have never even had to have been thought about. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And just my desire deep down to have wanted to to have wanted to be there stems from getting back from our own deployments, feeling this sense of responsibility of these junior Marines that I all of a sudden had under me. Waylon, Lannan, Corbett, Grimm, Miziak, and the rest of them being responsible for their well-being, their training, the furthering of their careers, because I was getting out. So my career was coming to an end, so I didn't care about mine. And doing that for such a short period of time, and I have a lot of regrets, things that I should have done with them that I didn't do. And then now I'm gone, and then they finally get their chance to deploy because it's like Waylon and them were saying, I know you probably heard the same things, like chances of deploying are like zero to none. Y'all probably going to be no pump Marines. <laughs> You know, do yeah. all four years at LAR and just get yeah. out. And then y'all get to deploy. And the deployment is responsible for ending a 20-year conflict and ending it in one of the worst ways imaginable. And y'all had to go through that. And I wasn't there to at least be some kind of support. <laughs> that, But again, there's all of that is to a point, some kind of, Wishful isn't the word I really want to use, but I can't think of another one to use. Like wishful thinking on my end. Because 
in the end, what happened happened. There's nothing I can, I can't turn back that clock and stop myself from getting out, extending just, and interviews like this. I mean, I love getting the stories. I love sitting down and listening to you guys tell your stories. I hope to God it's cathartic. I hope yeah. to God it, it helps. It and does. that release some kind of pressure. And I enjoy doing it, hoping that it is helping. But to listen to the stories that I've listened to thus far, and like the ones that you told me so far here, to say it frankly, it fucking sucks. It does. And I know I don't really show it very well because I've... Uh, I've had it ever since I was 10 years old. I have resting bitch face. I don't show a lot of emotion on my face, but it it sucks. But I hope that in doing this, it helps support you guys. I hope in doing this that it sets the record straight going forward for future generations and things that need to be answered for eventually will be. Yeah. And things that need to be understood. Lessons that have to be learned clearly will be you know but yeah the worst learners in the world are humans and the greatest teacher in the world is history and there is always an enmity between the teacher and the learner because if we have to learn from our mistakes we have to acknowledge that we made mistakes and there is an innate pride in human beings that wants to deny that failure so it's, I don't mean to like burst a bubble or, or, you know, capitulate to nihilism, but I, this is one of those things where I, I just kind of have to be there and mentally say I did what I could. And my seniors that never went, they did what they could to prepare me. And here's the cold, hard fact. Greg came back. Mike came back alive. Corbett came back alive. I came back alive. Y'all did your job. You fulfilled your task. They survived. You fulfilled your task. In the worst, worse than combat, according to those who have endured both, worse than combat, your training, your instruction, the input you gave to them kept them and inherently the rest of us alive. So for those guys that didn't go there, that gave us what we needed to survive, bravo, because we're not dead. We didn't kill a random refugee out of negligence. We conducted ourselves the best we could, and that's with honor, courage, and commitment. And that's hokey as shit. But when it hits the fan, and babies are insanguinating on barbed wire, and flashbangs are blowing open chests, and Taliban are cutting children open just to clear the way with sharpened poles, that's the only thing that's going to stay. All the rust is busted. That hard iron is left there. The core values. I know it's hokey as shit. I do. I get it. 
I've heard it. That's what's left. The discipline to abide, to hold that post. So in that respect, y'all did your jobs. You served these men. I'm alive because of stuff Greg did. I'm alive because of stuff Mike did. I kept it together because of those guys. Told my dad this because he felt particularly bad. He was there when the war began. He was in the initial invasions. It was his 16th year in the Marine Corps when he first took contact. I was there when it ended. And he said that he was so sorry that I had to go through that. I said, Dad, I was going to have to go through it anyways. You were going to have to go through what you did anyways. But thank you for what you did. Waking me up at 5 o'clock in the morning and making me take a cold dip in our pool in the middle of winter in Georgia, doing calisthenics with me in the morning with my brother, getting us ready for boot camp by PT with us every morning at 5 at the YMCA down the road. Those things kept me alive. Complacency kills. And so we learned how to kill complacency. Y'all created that environment. So it's a credit to you guys. Now, if everybody would have died, I, I, I can understand you feeling bad for yourself there. But we didn't, you know. We kept each other alive. We watched each other sick. We did the thing Marines are supposed to do. You know? And uh, again, albeit a hokey encouragement, it's an encouragement nonetheless. Thank you for that. Thank you. Got some things to say about Gunny Cap, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah. You all right? Well, you did something that hasn't happened yet. You made me fucking cry. So, congratulations. You're the first. I'm good. All right. Um, Gunny Cap, ultra human. Everyone said it. Everyone knows it to be true. He was a crackhead. We don't know how. He passed all of his, his piss tests, but somehow there was blood in his cocaine system. And that man had no fear. And if he did, he pissed it out. Like, it didn't stay there long. Nothing but twisted steel and sex appeal, that guy. He just was freaking a monster. He um, was always interpreting for us at the gate with the other Terps. A couple stories to kind of put into context the kind of balls this guy had between his legs. The Taliban captain, Captain Jack Swallow, we called him, because they were all gay. They, no kidding, held each other's pockets. I'm not even joking. This, Captain Jack Swallow had a bitch. I'm not even, I'm not kidding. So Captain Jack was like threatening somebody and he's shooting his pistol into the air. And he pulled it out and he pointed it at Gunny Cap. I don't remember why or what point, but he pointed his pistol at Gunny Cap. And Gunny Cap, whack, like bitch slapped the dude. I was like, what? He bitch slapped this guy, this Taliban fighter, this seasoned warrior, whatever the hell he was. He did that, and all the Marines were just like, jaws dropped to the floor. All the Taliban were like, jaws dropped to the floor. And, uh, you know, he was just a water-walking god after that. Just ridiculous. So, yeah, if you shoot Gunny Cap in the brain, you'll probably ricochet off of his thick-ass skull. If you shot him in the chest, you might get past his clothing. But again, the sweat stains are so thick, it'll probably stop, stop the bullet. <sighs> so essentially what I'm getting at here is, for the most part, it's probably bulletproof. No one can confirm or deny. The guy would stand up there and scream at the Afghanis and the Taliban like they were children. 
His voice never went out. I don't know how. It's like a DI. It's crazy. And every now and then, you'd be next to him and be like, see that fuck ass right there? See that guy? The Taliban? Yeah. Fuck that guy. I bet I'm going to kill that bitch. I'm going to kill that bitch. <laughs> say something like that. <laughs> but he kept the peace, man. And there was this one moment where I truly felt like a little piece of me died. Where this, towards the end of the time, our, our, our gate there, our five day stint, we were closing everything down. We were blockading everything. And I was on the JLTV with a riot shotgun. I was one of the only guys still up there. And this lady, I call her the bumblebee lady because she had a purse that was had a bumblebee on it. And she was holding it like this, right up against her chest. And she was standing there. She looked like Edna Mode from The Incredibles. She was a little lady. She uh, was basically saying, I think it was in one of the, one of the Pashtun and Ari languages or whatever. If I go back, I'll die. So just kill me. I want to die by an American, not a Taliban. And she went into detail as to what she imagined would happen to her. And the interpreter, you know, carried on. And Gunny Cap was just like, get her off there, Fritch. Get her back. It's like, fucking how? And he's like, you've got a riot shotgun on. Oh, that's how. I was like, I'm not going to shoot her. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm not going to shoot her. She's a frail old lady. He's like, okay, shoot past her, shoot next to her. And I shot next to her, and this is where a lot of people saw this, and they kind of freaked out a little bit inside. She did not even flinch. And I have never fired a weapon and felt like I was the one hit. I felt that then. I felt like I just shot myself. She was so desperate. She was so scared, man. You know, police say to protect and serve. Sure, SWAT has her own mantra. Those Marines were like on a courage commitment. Where the fuck does anyone say shoot at the old lady to scare her back into the crowd? I couldn't believe it, so I racked another round and I shot on her other side, and it landed right next to her again, and she didn't flinch either. Just like, I was dazed, man. I felt like I'd just been blown up. And I just, I got off the car, and I couldn't cry because I was too dehydrated. I didn't have any tears to shed, man. I was, I didn't know what to think. I still don't know what to think about it, man. I still don't know what to think about how, about that stuff, and... Gunny Cap, again, fucking water walker, spoke through a port and walked this woman down. And by the time I was back up on the JLTV, back on post, she turned around, she walked into the crowd. The Taliban grabbed her and walked her back, and I never saw her again. What did he say to her? He kept the peace. No one else challenged. We left the gate safe. Kept doing her thing. At some point, the Taliban threatened to attack us and kill us all and shoot us and stuff like that. Gunny Cap said something smart to him, <laughs> caught him off guard or whatever. It's like, you know, like to see you try or something like that. You know, I don't know. The guy was an American classic. <sighs> he had Copenhagen in his eyelids. Just something else. But the Taliban were saying that they were going to kill us. They had RPGs and they had mortars. We already knew they had mortars and shit because they had, you know, someone had shot mortars at us, but it was a dud, apparently. That was a funny story, too. 
was just standing out in the open and the CEO was like, Fritch, what the hell are you doing? I was like, um, uh, security, sir? And he was like, get back in here. But uh, we knew they had mortars. We knew they had snipers somewhere because we'd heard the pot shots, you know, the whole time. Um, we knew they had machine gunners and stuff. And there was that building out there that the snipers were, you know, mentioning. We knew we were surrounded. They had technicals and discas and 50s. They were going to kill us with their own weapons that they pulled off of our own depots. And I was freaking, I was scared again. I was like, man, if I die, I was like to the head or something because I want to feel that. I don't want to, you know, go through that pain. I remember thinking that, like, wow, if I was to die, where do I want to get hit? Probably the head. So I don't want to think about it. But better yet, why not the heart? Because I'll die pretty quickly because of, you know, the lack of blood pressure. So I'll pass out. It will really only feel like being, you know, burning pain. So it's, it's better than like having a migraine or whatever. But I don't know. My thinking was flawed. I was tired. Okay. <laughs> so I'm terrified now. I'm thinking again about Elisa. I've kind of forgotten the words my dad said because now it's, you know, shit's hitting the fan again. I'm tired. And, you know, my mind is atrophied with the weight of the, the moral dissolution. And I am shaking. I can't control it. I'm shaking. I'm like not particularly scared, but I'm shaking and I can't stop. And Staff Sergeant Craig Riggle, Marines Marine right there, he looks at me and, you know, we're, we're not pals, but we're good friends. And uh, he looks me in the eye. He's looking up to me because he's a little shorter than I am. I'm just trembling like a chihuahua that has to take a shit. And he put his hand on my shoulder, my left shoulder. And in times of stress, I can still kind of feel the sensation he gave me then because it was like from that point to the rest of my body, an enzyme or, you know, a potion was released and that just calmed me down like Freon in a refrigerator, just spread the cool throughout my body and back to stone cold. And I was good. I was good. Got the warm and fuzzies. It's like, you know what? Fucking Dallas. I'm doing, I'm doing something good. I'm out here supporting people that supported the nation. Screw all those, you know, slimy, greasy, nasty people that I want to throw into the barbed wire and leave here. It's the other ones, you know, the mom and her baby, Samir. It's Mir, the bodybuilder. The interpreters we worked with, as they were training, like practically freezing to death that one night. Those kids I taught how to use an MRE properly. Freaking, it was all that. I was like, that's worth it. That's worth it. It's worth it. I can do this. And then they never did anything. They got out in their vehicles and they ran off. Mexican standoff, Marines one, tally zero. And the whole time, Gunny Cap was just standing there. It's like, try it, bitch. In the front front lines. Just like he knew they would never do it. He knew it. That was an absolute, absolute badass. Sometime after that, we, uh, we left the gate. But I want to hit this because it's something no one really talks about a whole lot. The smell. The smell was hell. Have you ever smelled rotting nuts? Like, Maybe. like almonds and stuff. Like, it's a weird smell. It's a really weird smell. Have you ever smelled uh, rotting corn, like sweet corn? I want to say yes, but it had to have been so long ago. I can't remember what that would have yeah. smelled like. I don't know. So when you're baiting for hogs down here in the south, they like to ferment corn and hogs, they will throw themselves on that like blondes to a millionaire, man. It's just, they're all about it. But I remember just feeling this nasty, putrid smell. Vomit, urine, feces, 
rotting blood, rotting flesh, and just over all of it, the smell of rotting nuts. I don't know what it was. It was some bacteria strain or whatnot. And it was just, oh my God. It was like hitting a wall when you walked out of the gate, hitting a wall. And every time I'm, this is unconfirmed, so grain of salt. There was this one spot as you left the gate to go stand on the perimeter past the gate in the barbed wire there, where there was a squelch every time. And the ground kind of sunk. And it, every time it squelched, it would smell like a rotting animal. And all I could think is, there's somebody below that. There's somebody down there. And they've been dead for a while. Hatton was another one of our guys. I felt bad for him. He got the short end of the stick most of the deployment. It's from what I saw. It was a baller. He is a baller. Absolutely. He could He could throw down at the bar. He was having some real tough times with his family. And I just I, I just really looked up to him for how well he was handling the strife that he was being put through while on ship. His family was going through some tough times. I remember seeing his face this one moment where they, they gave a little baby to him that was dead. Gave this dead gray baby to Hatton. This crowd surfed it all the way up and grabbed it. And he just, I, I can't replicate the expression he made in words or physically it was what do i do with this why did you give me this oh my god petrified mortified like a series of human expressions i've never seen before on his face and he just this is like what do i do with this I, I don't remember what happened after that it was like i just blocked that off i just saw that moment it's like when you close your eyes when you're looking at something in motion and you just remember that last thing right before your eyes close I remember that, that scene, that gray baby, arms limp, looked like wet spaghetti noodle. <sighs> Damn, that poor man. But he held it together for the most part, man. He held it together. Eventually, the stress did get to us. It did, particularly through Clark and Mary. Clark is the guy right next to Gunny Cap reaching down for the baby. Um, in the famous picture, is you know pulling the baby over the gate. Clark is the guy reaching down there to support the baby as it comes up. Lance Corporal Hunter Clark, he did an address in front of a huge crowd with President Trump. He cried out there. It was super moving. Lovely guy. Didn't have great chemistry with him on the mute. Just didn't. He's not my kind of guy. I wasn't his kind of guy. Whatever. Him and my my buddy Marion had it at each other's throats the entire time. Because he was, you know, kind of a senior to Marion, but not Marion Senior. But he assumed the position of Marion Senior just to get on his ass. But he got on Marion for something during a patrol. And this is where I realized, well, this is affecting all they went at it hard. Maring bopped Clark in the nose, just rocked his world. And Maring was a hockey player, so he knew how to throw his weight around. Clark was just kind of an aggressive player, so he knew how to throw in some body shots. And it was like two big cats going at it, you know, like the scuffle and the, the grunts and the growls at each other. And just the, and then they stopped. We just watched him, like, get it out, boys. Watch him do it. And then somebody with rockers yelled at us and we broke up and Clark was all bloodied up and Marion was bloodied up too. And not bad at all. Just, you know, boiling point kind of stuff. And we all just kind of realized that, wow, this is, this is not good. It's, it's, it's hitting now. The mania is, is beginning. So fast forward a little ways. We're now on patrol. I'm watching a sector and it was comical, man. Every time I'd look away, someone would crawl over the fence. Like I would go to the right sector. Left side would crawl over the fence. 
left sector, somebody was right sector. It's like they were watching me. It's hilarious. But my lieutenant, lieutenant, I'm not going to say his name because a few people have talked about him and not a lot of people liked him, but I just won't say his name. Our lieutenant was getting pissed. I was like, why the fuck is the French on his gun? I was like, I am on my gun. <laughs> so don't know why. The uh, army had thermals and IR and MVGs. Forrest kind of alluded to how little they actually properly employed this crap. My impression of the army at this point is very, very low. While we were on the gate, the army is in the shade in a hole on a gun looking at a wall that is behind a wall that we are guarding that is also behind another wall. So they're four layers in on a gun in the shade with a big old pallet of water next to them with a full supply of ammo and freaking rest shifts and everything. And the only time I see them doing shit is at the Abbey Gate when we drop off our detainees. And that's just a small fraction of the army guys that were actually there. And so I have a really low opinion of them right now. Yeah. And so now I'm in a gun truck on a gun that has no ammo. A 240 with no ammo. That's shitty. It has no optic. That's also pretty shitty. And it wasn't due to negligence. Like, we didn't lose anything. It just didn't happen because the army is it's mine now. So here we are, straight off of a five-day shift. Six hours of sleep, that's all we got. No food resupply. We had to scrounge for, li- we were literally like eating packets of Panda Express sweet and sour sauce. Happy Thanksgiving dinner, you know. Screw you, I guess. And these army guys, these army cats, most of them had these resupplies. And I could see the, you know, piles of MREs there next to them. It was just like, okay. So I didn't really like that. You know, it felt like we were out here working and they were just, you know, snooping and pooping like, oh, we're so tactical. So I, don't, I don't know. That was my perception. And my perception is subject to the woes of sleep, water, and nutritional deprivation. So take that with a grain of salt, please, sir. So I'm sitting here on this gun. Behind me, behind two layers of fences, is another army guy sitting behind his gun. He has thermals and IR and an ammo resupply. And I'm sitting up there with no thermals, no IR, and no ammo. Looking into 10,000 sniper holes. Maring had found a helmet in the base of that vehicle we were in. And the helmet had skull and hair and blood and brain fragments still inside of it. It wasn't a skull, it was a helmet. And it was obviously one of the ANA guys, it was a high cut, so it was we're imagining that it was either somebody with a you know high speed low drag ANA team, or maybe just, you know, some guy who grabbed something from those people. But he got dome piece, and he got dome piece really damn good. Because there were, you know, memories of him in there. And then, of course, the back plate, you know, the, the, the protective plate in the back of us, of my turret there, was just splattered with something. And it was just black because the sand had gotten on it and, you know, oil had gotten back there, too. So I'm assuming that's where he's dead. This is where he died. I am now here looking there. And there's a lot of theirs. I cannot see into these holes because I have no thermals. I cannot shoot into them because I have no ammo except for my M4. And I'm just thinking, man, what a crappy letter. Your husband died on a turret with no ammunition and no optics, looking at an area which he couldn't actually technically cover. Thank you for your service. And I'm just sitting here looking at this helmet, thinking, like, I wonder how many kids that guy had. I wonder who his dad was. I was up in that turret for, it seemed like, three, four, five days. It wasn't that long, not even close. 
not even remotely. I took a photo. My anxiety peaked at around 12 o'clock, you know, just like the devil's hour or some BS like that. My anxiety peaked and I took a photo, smiling as hard as I could, and I sent it to my wife. I was like, right now, just get low in the turret, take this photo, send it to her, let her have something, you know, if I die tonight, lose her side. And so all night I was just wired, trying to look at this hole, look at that hole, pull down my nods, clean out my, you know, my objective lens, clean out this, you know, sharpen up the vision, tweak up the settings, just everything I could do, just stay active, to stay low, stay sharp. And then the sun broke. And uh, the Azerbaijani guys sitting next to us the ways over came by with with instant coffee. <laughs> like, hello, would you like, would you like some coffee? And we're like, hell yeah. <laughs> so this is the highest I'd gotten in my turret. I leaned over to grab the coffee and I got back in like that. Down. I was like, all right, I'm on turret death later. I started sipping my coffee. And uh, um, I traded, I think I traded out with either Mary or Landon. Oh, God, thank God. Oh my goodness, the amount of relief I felt getting out of that turret. So good. Sold my coffee, pissed off. <laughs> Um, then we went over to the Azerbaijanis with, uh, Tran, Ty Tran. No one's mentioned Ty Tran yet. I noticed. Good kid. Uh, he was one of the fast guys that came to our battalion to fill in as a, uh, a dismount. Had some issues, but altogether, he was, he was for the guys. He was for the boys. He was the first Marine that I physically salted because of, uh, because I was angry with him. Back during the workup, we were doing some CQB classes, and I was, you know, fresh out of CQB. I trained with SWAT teams. I, I was fairly comfortable with my level of experience when it came to that sort of stuff. But he had trained with fast teams, so he thought he knew everything. He's like, he, I remember this quote: "It's the job of the point man to take the bullets." And I was like, "What the hell are you saying, bro? Like, hell no, it's not. Hell no, the point man does not take the bullets. The point man freaking kills people. All right, you're not trying to take bullets. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into that." But he kept going against me in front of my Marines, and I got pissed off. And I pulled him out to the side. And I just elbowed him in the face, and uh, didn't really hurt him all that bad. But we were Gucci after that. So that's what I love about the Marine Corps. You can you can you can wail on somebody, and take shots with them an hour later, and just like you know, sing "Sweet Caroline" for three hours. Man, what a good dude, though. Him and I, Lannon. This is one photo I I actually cry sometimes because I don't have it. This is a good memory. Him and I and Landon, uh, Mary, went over and sat with the Azerbaijanis and talked with them for a little while and had coffee and had some like breakfast snacks. This is the first real fluid we'd had in like a day or two. First real food we'd had in two or three days. And we'd all gotten sick with something. You know, obviously we're in, you know, medieval style trenches this entire time. Um, a lot of, a lot of hazy memories after that. We came back, we were preparing for the bomb. We knew the bomb was coming. I remember that much. We knew the bomb was coming. Like we had details. My mom was texting me details she was seeing on the news. My wife was constantly, you know, trying to figure out if I'm okay. But eventually she stopped because the anxiety got to her. And if you ask her later, she'll tell you like, she just kind of gave up on it. She's like, whatever happens, happens. The Lord is, Lord is good. She physically couldn't take it anymore. Her body was assaulting her with the stress. Man, was I pissed off. I drank with Sergeant Guy when we were in uh, Greece. She could do the Marine thing. She was one of the very few Marines who could do the Marine thing. You know, she could be 
hard. She could be compassionate. She could be human and funny and natural and just okay. And she wasn't, you know, some infantry battalions, they'll be very harsh with their critiques of female Marines. You know, you're either, you're either a wench or you're just throwing yourself on every other Marine. And that's a very harsh critique, something that I don't agree with, but it is, it is something that happens in the Marine Corps. Those are two very vast stereotypes and I don't agree with them, but I know that they are to a degree. So there are some people that fill those stereotypes. She was not that kind of, that kind of chick. She was a good chick. She's the only one I knew. You know how shitty you feel? They weren't even on my ship. I shouldn't have had to know them. There's no viable justification for how I feel about that. It's not my business. But damn it, they were Marines. They were they were Marines, man. Brothers and sisters doing a job for the betterment of other people in a country where other people are worth less than the dirt on your shoes. We were out here giving our hearts and souls for it, and they gave their goddamn lives. I didn't even know their names. I remember feeling a percussive thump in my chest at some point and correlating that to a delayed explosion, like the, the sound of the feeling delayed. I don't know if that was the bomb of the navigator, the detonation of, you know, UXO later on. But I wanted to be there to help with the casualties. Thank God I wasn't. Thank God I wasn't there. I saw videos of it afterwards. The trench, the shit trench, was full of bodies, body parts. I read a citation for one of the Marines that survived there that saved another Marine from dying. Took, you know, shrapnel as well as bullets and then more shrapnel and died in the helicopter, had to have you know, heart to hand resusc resuscitation. I read that to my poolies during one of our PTs, you know, because I'm a bitch ass recruiter now. <laughs> but uh, you can you imagine sitting in an office 14 to 18 hours a day with all those memories swirling around your head by yourself? I uh, read the citation to my. I created a uh, a PT series we do um, every August. It's like the Dirty Thirteen, I call it, and uh, it's just thirteen sets of thirteen reps of thirteen um, workouts, and you finish it off with a thirteen minute plank, and it's fucking brutal. I love it; it's so good, <laughs> and it uh, kills them every time. God, they're puking, and so I love it. And then I read the citation once we're done, once I cool down. Done that every year since then. Be it out here. One of the poolies fucking forgot. He's been in my program for a year now. He's been to two of them, and he forgot. It's not that big a deal, man. It's just like. The worst thing that happened was those 13 people died there. At least the worst thing the news saw. They didn't release the videos of the, you know, the babies hanging from barbed wire 20 feet in the air. They didn't release the videos of Hatton holding a gray 
spaghetti noodles. It's dead. They didn't release the videos of the guy's chest blown open. They didn't release those, but they, you know, released the videos of, you know, bodies being offloaded. And everyone forgot that. I didn't even know their names, man. So I still do it. I'm faithful to it. <laughs> Stupid puppy. Little double pup. I uh I remember hearing about the horror of you know what went down there and the second explosion at the hotel. Yeah. It was sobering as hell. And uh I know my wife is gonna watch this. She's gonna listen to this podcast if you have the grace to post it on the Spotify list later on, which I'd appreciate it if you did, because she really wants to listen. So do my parents and my brother and everybody else, but Coming back, that's all I can really say on that right now, man. I'm sorry. No, you're good, man. Um, so we came back to Kuwait, and there's one story that one thing happened to me that I prefer you edit. Please do edit this out, but. Okay. End scene. You can pick it up now. I consider it done. No, you can continue recording from there on out like when you're no i know but we would yeah um i tried to have some semblance of normalcy i wouldn't talk to the chaplain there let him know what had happened with me with like the nightmares and everything and uh he was like oh you're just gonna make sure that you're taking care of your body correctly and you know read your you know read yourself and try to know your body and and uh you know make sure you fall into a good regiment now that was insulting anyways the uh the week before we left i was trying to become a part of the 1000 pound club and i was like 10 pounds away i just couldn't get that extra 10 pounds man it was five pounds on deadlift and five pounds on bench and i was so freaking close and then we left, and I was like, no, nah, I'll never be a part of the Thousand Pound Club. But I've kind of lost so much weight and been so sick and so deprived of all the normal things people have that I dropped over 100 pounds on every single max, every single one. I lost all my progress, and I could not do a 30-minute workout. I used to work out for two and a half hours. I couldn't do 30 minutes. And I couldn't stand to be alone with my thoughts for that long. So I ended up just watching YouTube. I would literally sit in my bunk and I'd watch YouTube. I would watch this guy on a fishing channel, Christian dude. It's really not really like go lucky dude, just happy, you know. Just sit there and watch it. And I was just reclused. I didn't want to fall apart in front of somebody else. That was like huge fear of mine. And then I started running a lot in the gym. I would run for like I think my longest run was two hours in the gym. I'd run for a minimum of one hour a day. Not all that fast, you know, just like just run. Because the pain was so bad in my joints and in my body, like my lungs and everything hurt so bad, it took away the thoughts. And it was literally like a, a form, I guess you could say, a good form of self-harm in that the pain for, the pain helped me forget. And I was doing a lot worse than I let off to the other guys. And I don't think they were doing as well as they let off to me. And yeah, there was a point where we all like sat down and Sergeant Sav was like, all right, guys, uh, Gunny Cap wants me to go over this list of questions. We'll hit it real quick and then uh, just talk, right? 
And they're like, okay. <laughs> and uh, it's like, is there anything you want to talk about during your time there? Any experience you saw that was shocking? And of course, somebody would pipe up and say something, and everybody would just be like, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. that's fucked up. Next question. It's like, what? <laughs> this help? <laughs> um, so it's kind of like, you know, just bailing out the boat that's sinking with a teaspoon. Just like, the hell are we doing, bro? There was a big formation where First Sergeant Young and our CEO and Gunny Cap talked to us and we're like, listen, boys, you know, we've been to war. You know, we've, we've, we've done the thing where we killed the people and, you know, survived and seen Marines die. And that was the worst thing we've ever seen in our lives. And it was a comfort, but it was also like, oh no, what are we going to do now? No one knows what to do now. No one's been through something like that. We don't know how to fix this. Like they gave us hope, but they also ripped it out at the same time. You know, it's like to to me, to me at least. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean us. I mean me. At the same time, I was like, oh god, what am I going to do now? This is something that's never really happened, aside from like maybe the neo from Vietnam back in like the 18 or 1700s or whatever. I'm, I say that jokingly. <laughs> yeah. Um, aside from that, this really isn't something that a lot of our therapists are about. They really know a whole lot about like how are we going to fix this how are we going to fix ourselves because i'm walking around i feel like i feel like pinocchio with no screws or glue or anything i feel like i'm just falling apart and every time i tell somebody i'm good i'm lying i'm really lying out my teeth fast forward i started eating a lot gained a little bit of weight gained a little more weight concerning amount of weight for me didn't look good anymore I wasn't like out of you know height and weight ranks or anything. It was just like I didn't like the way I looked, and because uh, I was you know, like I felt comfortable when I ate. I didn't think about the stuff when I ran, so I did those things. And the running just couldn't keep up with the diet, so I was you know unhealthy there. I kind of struggled with alcohol when I got back a little bit, not much. You know, I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to do anything that I could like jeopardize my career, jeopardize my marriage, or anything like that. So I tried to make sure my coping mechanisms were docile in nature as much as I could. But any coping mechanism becomes a addiction sooner rather than later. I tried to hang out with guys a little bit. It just felt awkward. Everybody was like holding their hands over wounds on their body, wearing a poker face. It's what it felt like to me. Maybe that's what I perceived because I too was trying to hold my hand over my wounds. We flew back. The plane ride to Ireland was pretty docile. We didn't get to get our damn Guinness. I want my damn Guinness. <laughs> I was cheated. I want the news to know about this. We got back to the U.S. The homecoming was actually kind of nice. I was with my family. I was so happy to be back with you, Lisa, that I forgot about my gear. And Lieutenant Flynn called me as I was leaving the parking lot. I was like, hey, Chris, your gear is still here. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Just turned around, grabbed it, put it in the truck, and got back, got home. So glad to be back with you, Lisa. She was so glad to be back with me and married life continued. And I talked to her about the stuff and I talked to the guys a little bit and the basic, you know, wind down happened. When we were in Jordan, that miserable field op I told you about, I found that I was going on recruiting. That was livid. I was very livid. And uh, when I got back, I realized, oh, I still have to go out onto recruiting. So I I had to say goodbye to all this. I have to say goodbye to all my friends. What the hell, man? Now I'm really terrified because I know how bad I'm doing, personally. And I got to say goodbye to all my friends. I don't get to. I don't get the soft letdown that some of them are going to get. So 
Some of them are going to want to leave by the time it's time for them to leave. I'm not going to want to leave by the time it's time for me to be taken away. And I just, I fell apart, man. I really did. I'll admit it. I, you know, I played a lot of video games way more than I used to. I went fishing every freaking second I could. I ran as miserable a run as I, I would run on the hottest days with plate carriers on off days and stuff just to try to not think about it. I wanted to sleep, 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 sleep. Because sometimes I'd get a good dream. And that was the only good thing, you know. I didn't want to be around other people that were hiding their shit. So then I didn't want to be around the guys, but I wanted to be around the guys. I went to recruiting school. I did terribly, but I passed. I got out to my recruiting. By the way, recruiting school is gay as hell. (laughs) I got out to my station. My first month was great. I wrote my two contracts. My second month, I took a discharge, which is terrible. I wrote one contract. My third month, I wrote zero, fourth, zero, fifth, zero. And I would just feel like I was dragging the team down, man. We weren't making missions. We are having a hard time. And I was like, Afghanistan, you did nothing right. Everyone you helped died. And I'm just forgetting about Samir. I'm forgetting about Mir. I'm forgetting about the baby. And I'm just, I'm, I'm down. I'm, I'm losing. I've got no friends. I want to reach out to them. But I feel like no one's actually struggling like I am. I know they are, but I don't feel like it. And I just feel like a failure. And I had some spiritual battles, too real spiritual battles just not like the oh god please help me like the real the real ones man total gravity kind of stuff and my uh my vices were hurting elisa taking time away from gregory impacting my work now and i was sitting in my truck one night been told no a thousand times received a death threat that day from a parent got a call from the ceo at the time claiming that i wasn't doing my job she didn't believe i was in the office she thought i was gaffing off so i knew that no one in the chain of command trusted me anymore that's a real that's a real just like cojone shot for a marine when your command says they don't trust you that's horrible and your boss won't stand up for you it's even worse man I was trying everything. I was trying my best. I was desperate as hell, and the kids saw that and didn't want it. And uh, because I'd received so many death threats from parents and stuff, it's, just, it's natural to recruiting. Some, it's it's going to happen at some point. I always carried my pistol with me. I've had that pistol since I was 18. I was 25 at the time, I think. You know, I'd won competitions with that pistol. Cleared the house when I thought we had a home invader once with that pistol. Just put some people in their place, you know, you know, people that talk loud at the range and during competitions. It was no no crazy fancy pistol. I put some personal modifications on it, but you know, it's maybe like a thousand dollar pistol altogether with everything there. And I've got you know guys that have customs from Sinbad Arms like five K, ten K guns, and like oh I could dust your ass, and I just you know make them question whether or not they're actually human with you know, my accuracy and, and speed and I just you know I was very proud of my abilities with that pistol and yeah very linked to it but I'm sitting in the car the truck that I'd purchased with my reenlistment bonus spent two years searching for it with Elisa outside of our house the Marine Corps provided for me for a duty I didn't want failing at yet another thing in my mind failing as a husband failing as a father failing as a as a Christian failing as a Marine I had that gun 
crashed on my lap. I was so done, man. So tired. Elisa assumed I would be coming home soon. And so she went downstairs to throw my dinner into the microwave. And I saw her shadow through the rear view mirror on the left side. And it was like I woke up. I was sitting there on that gun for 10, 15 minutes just looking at it. Didn't blink once. I know that for a fact. I was rationalizing death. And I saw her, uh, I saw her shadow. And I woke up from that. And I realized I needed some help. The next day I called my uh, uncle, who's a police officer for the past 27 years. I tested everybody. Everyone I called, I tested them. I'm telling you this because I want people that listen to this podcast to know that what they're doing right now, or what they've been through is, someone else went through that too. I tested everybody to see who I could trust to tell that I was struggling with this. No one passed. No one passed that test. Um, but Uncle Vince called me back when he's like, yeah, I just want to return your call. And so I just I was like, fuck it. I might as well just like throw him a bone, see if he can pass the second time. And I, I gave him a hint, kind of like an indicator. And uh, he picked up on that. Thank God he picked up on that. I ended up going to a foundation called Mighty Oaks, started by Chad Robichaux, retired Marine, very successful recon, I believe sniper qualified as well, MMA fighter, jiu-jitsu black belt, owns a couple gyms, just a super successful guy. Almost killed himself in a closet with his 1911. He's very open about that in his, uh, his ministry. He started Mighty Oaks, Christian ministry for military and EMS. I went there and I felt hope. I felt a lot of hope. I kept in contact with my counselor, started turning my life around a little bit, started fighting against my vices, confessed to a lot of stuff. And I found out the root of what I was struggling with was the fact that while I was there, I became what I had to be. I became violence. I became cold. I became anger and fear. I did as what the Romans did. I was okay with it. I was good with it. I was good at it. And I enjoyed it. And the same thought that we have, you know, like how can you throw a kid on a barbed wire fence? I then realized I found I found the thread. The thread that leads from muzzle thumping a dude in the chest to hacking a kid's arm for being in your way with a knife. I found the fucking thread while I was there. And I realized I was capable of that too. And I was so livid at God for showing me that, for convicting me of that, proving to me, violating me with that information um, that I didn't want anything to do with him. I was truly angry at God for that and so afraid too, you know? Greg Whalen would never have admitted to, you know, in my mind, hating these people. I hated them. Michael Landon would never have admitted to enjoying, you know, but the fact that these guys were miserable or taking pride in how well I could control that crowd. So I felt really alone, like I was a monster and a failure. And 
I was never going to leave this spiral down into madness and, you know, to becoming an atrocity. So those were the things I struggled with, man. And I realized I am those. And that's okay. Because unless you understand that you are capable of the ultimate sin, you'll never understand how important it is to have a God who is omnipotent. You'll never realize how important it is to have that to rely upon. If I lean on my own strength, building my house in the sand, like that sand in Portugal, if I lean on my understanding, I'll forget. I'll lose my understanding. And I tried those. I tried leaning on my strength. I tried leaning on my understanding. My body broke and my, my mind addled. And I hurt people in the process. But where I'm at right now is that I am flesh. I am human. I'm capable of the same evil that I saw. Everyone is Hitler's past from being Hitler. That's truly what I believe. No one is innately born especially evil. We are what our environment creates of us. And I found in myself that understanding I am wholly fallible. Kind of took off the pressure of wanting to be perfect or wanting to not be wholly fallible. Kind of like, okay, well, all right, I am. I am broken. That's okay. That's okay. How do I fix this? Rely on the one who's not broken. Rely on the one who created me. Gave me a spirit and a soul and understanding. Because he can fix that. He won't fix it while I'm alive. But when my time comes, that's a promise that he's got. And he's held every promise since then. He's kept me alive to understand that. And I have witnessed to people. Samir, I've witnessed to him with that. And it's helped him. He works for public affairs right now, bringing people back from Afghanistan. He works furthering that, that mission that we, that we did. Helping people integrate into the U.S., learn English, get jobs, pass clearance checks, everything. He's that now. That guy that I calmed down at the East Gate, who's freezing to death and miserable, wanted to die. That guy that I talked to, he's out there helping people survive. That's important to me. There's hope at the end. I wasn't going to talk about that because, well, it forced me to acknowledge my, my innate fallibility. But when I heard Forrest and what he said, thank you, Forrest, by the way, for your honesty. And Forrest's wife, for forcing that honesty. I knew I had to say something. I had to bring it up because it's the truth. So Elise is the reason I'm alive. She's one of the reasons I continue fighting. And uh, the other guys out here that I can impact the same way that you as seniors impacted us by providing an example, providing an explanation, some ROEs, SOPs. If I can do that by sharing that testimony and sharing what worked for me, please do. Yeah. Sorry, I rambled for God. <laughs> an hour. Holy crap. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry. No, don't apologize. That's like I like I told other guys, I love it when people ramble. I honestly do. I tell my wife that too, because she does the same thing. <laughs> so there's nothing to apologize for there. Yeah. So that's kind of start to finish of uh, Sergeant Fritz, USMC, beginning and end. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm just, I'm just trying to think of what questions to ask. I guess just some things for clarification. So like when y'all were in Jordan, 
Yeah. On deployment for that training. That's when you found out that you were going to get pulled for recruiting while you're on yeah, deployment. Yeah. That's where it was. Yep. I got Damn. Staff Sergeant Riggle walked up to me and he was just like defeated. He's like, yo, Greg, I'm sorry. He handed him to me. And I was reading, I was like, bro, what the hell is this? It's paper. He's like, you've been histed. I was like, what? No, I'm not. I've not been histed. And he's like, yeah, you're going on recruiting. And dude, you talk about a pissed off Marine who was throwing shit around and like punching lockers. <laughs> I was a little baby just throwing a tamper, uh, temper tantrum. Oh my goodness. Cringy. Yeah. I'll be really pissed off as well. She's like, oh yeah, when you get back, yeah, I'm just waiting for you. That's yep. fun to think about. <laughs> and then it's like, so like when y'all did get back, how long did you have with the battalion before you had to go to, before you got your orders, you had to go to recruiting school? Um, Good question. I, I had orders to leave January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August. April, I left in May. Funny story, I broke my ankle while playing Ultimate Frisbee with the guys during R&R. It was like a bone break. It was the cartilage was fractured. And the, uh, on my right ankle and the, uh, tendons broke from the, from the muscle. And so my foot was kind of like out of the fight. But then I got orders to do advanced school right before recruiting school. And so I went to advanced school and I can tell you right now, that was freaking miserable, really miserable. 21 miles for the IST strength test for that school was brutal with that ankle. The, uh, the physical guys. So it had been, it had been, I think two months since I did that to my ankle that I went checked into advanced school, two or three months. And so it was kind of healing a little bit, but I would still roll it every day. And it was horrible. Still purple and blue and very painful. It's rolling up every day. The physical guy there like cranked it one way and then cranked it the other way. And I was like, oh my God, what are you doing? And he was like, nah, you're fine. It's like grade two. And I was like, what's what's that mean? He's like, you know, you got grade one, grade two, and grade three. It's like right before grade three, but it's a grade two. And I was like, how do you judge that? And he's like, that's the way it sounds. And I was like, what the hell, bro? It's <laughs> like rebroke my ankle and telling me that I can do this class. So I did the class. I passed the IST. I was crying at the end of it. I was like a little bitch, just crying because my ankle hurt so bad and my shoulders hurt so bad. Everything hurt. It wasn't as bad as Henderson and Maring had it because they had to carry extra stuff because I think they forgot something on their packing list. The poor guys. I felt horrible for him. I wanted to help them, but I was also like, I'm not helping you guys. My ankle hurts too bad. <laughs> so yeah, I had time to do advanced school. I passed, skin of my teeth again. Then I did recruiting school, I think uh, a month later. So in my unit, I think I had like, I don't know, five or six months. Yeah, about that. Pretty nice. Wasn't enough, but it was nice. Yeah, I remember from Landon and Waylon, both of them, they were getting out like the very end of that year. And so it was like, all right, you're back. Go start getting ready to get out and <laughs> back out to your, your civilians again. <laughs> Have fun. Yep. Yep. Poor guys, man. But at one point, I was like, I'm really happy for you guys. And the other point, I was like, man, I'm envious as hell. Yeah. And I remember talking to the LAR guys when they got back. I mean, you know how LAR deploys. It's only like a platoon or a company at a time. When they got back from their deployment, they got back to the battalion area. They were under basically what amounts to like a gag order. Because it was like it wasn't clear like what they could talk about, what they couldn't talk about. Yeah, like with their own people. It's just yeah, there was a lot of there's a lot of policies in place that I didn't particularly agree. We heard that a lot of the uh, ah, I'm dying here. I had to plug my thing in, so now my phone is falling apart. 
we were told there was a lot of stuff that we couldn't talk about, couldn't post certain photographs, videos. Some guy got hemmed up for posting a super sick montage video of stuff they went through. Yeah, gag order was real, man. Real. And it was explained to me by someone I won't mention because they wanted to remain anonymous that it, it's kind of because he, he had deployed before Combat Punk and how that there's always that kind of order that's there. It's like, well, you can't talk about what you experienced on the planet for like a set amount of time. Right. So he, he explained that to me as like, it's a standard thing. But at the same time, still considering everything that did happen, like, oh, yeah, we're just going to move on with life. Don't talk about it. And then eventually you figure out like everybody's trying to forget this shit. Yeah, everyone is. That was it was like that was like a uh, an insult, you know, like Biden sends us out here and tells us to do this impossible job and gives us no resources to do so. And then says, OK, now shut the hell up. And even the awards and everything was like pushed back because they didn't want a ton of media around the topic. At least that's what we heard. So get this. The awards for it just hit my MOL last month. Yeah, I know the. Like you talk about all the awards, yeah. For, for your, yeah. So yeah I, the, I know uh, the puck. I know the puck just came down not too long ago. Puck and the NATO. So yeah, they just hit my system recently, within this this new fiscal year. So yeah, I was like, I see how it is. I see how it is. That was I will I will admit a bit insulting, and it refer you know I, I refer back to that kid who forgot about the PT thing that I did for the thirteen. <sighs> You find out that people who haven't been there don't get it. Thus, it's not important. Perception is reality for them. It's not important because I don't get it. I don't get it because I wasn't there. So because I wasn't there, it wasn't important. So you sum the whole thing up like that and it's like, yuck. And unfortunately, it seems to be the attitude towards really towards the Afghan war as a whole. Yeah. Because it's, it's not like Vietnam where the draft was going on. There were hundreds of thousands of Americans in country at any given time. For for Afghan, it only got to around a hundred thousand once. I think that was in twenty eleven, and there was never any declaration of war. There was obviously never a draft, and just so like if you listen to Pool's interview, like he talked about when he got home, he tried to talk about it with friends and family, and they're like, "Oh, that's still a thing." Yeah, that happened. Like what? Oblivious. What's Kim Kardashian wearing tomorrow? Yeah. And one of the guys that was working with the foundation kind of talked about this as well. It's like, you don't, it's not that you really want to force people to acknowledge it, but at the same time, it's like, you can't deny that it happened. You can't pretend it didn't happen. And I think a lot of people, just to make themselves feel better, to make themselves feel more comfortable, would just, even with the internet and everything, the world being more connected today than it ever has been, are still so selective, you know. Yeah, and it's just, yeah. But yeah, that's 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 one of the things that we're trying to change here. It's like we're not trying to get put in people's faces or anything like that, but collect and publish so that people can understand and acknowledge. Yeah, the effort to learn, the effort to learn from the past. It's an uphill battle, always is. A noble and uh, noble and difficult battle. And uh, I, can't, I can't tell you how thankful I was when I heard Greg and Mike speaking, how comforting that was to me, just mentally, emotionally. Hearing him talk about some of the things 
hearing his tone change the way it used to, we were there. With Mike, you know, hearing him kind of open up a little bit more, it assured me that I wasn't subhuman for the thoughts and concerns I had. On that front alone, you know, I'm super thankful y'all are doing this. On the other side, these kids that I talk to on a daily as a recruiter have no clue what the patriotism is. They think they know what it is. They think they have an understanding or an idea. Maybe they've dipped their toes in the water through the experience of their grandpa's niece's uncle's cat, but they don't know what patriotism is. No clue. They, furthermore, none of them know what love is. Greater love hath no man than this that one man lay down his life for his brother. That's love. It is to give till giving is done. And they have no clue. To be honest, I'm still learning what that definition means. But true patriotism is probably only unlocked through experiencing horrible, horrific things. Pulling from the past is not a bad way to do that. It's not. It's probably the best way. So, 9-11, HKIA, Vietnam, those are all things that I find myself looking into quite often to try to learn the importance. Not so much the, the little lessons, because the little lessons always have intricacies in them, but the overarching scheme. This is what happened. This is what had to be done. This is what worked. This is what didn't. What will I do? So, unfortunately, I haven't got all the answers for that yet. I'm still looking. Yeah, no, I get that. I still, I mean, I didn't know what patriotism was when I was in the pool program. I didn't know what it was when I thought I did at the time. No. I, I thought I didn't know what it was for. Maybe I still don't. If I really think about it hard, mm-hmm. maybe I don't. And the love as well. I think when I was in, I reached an understanding of it to a point. But I still think I'm not there yet. Yeah. If you if you know what I mean. I want to get there. But I don't know, maybe that's just me getting a little too philosophical. Um, no, I I I understand that. I find that philosophical is one of the important things of being a warrior, you know. <laughs> lions led by fools, no better than fools led by lions, you know. To know and learn on every level is an important endeavor. When it comes to thought on, on love and, and learning, Sun Tzu and Orson Scott Card kind of hit this on the head with Ender's Game and, of course, The Art of War. You know, Sun Tzu says, if you know yourself, you'll win 50 wars. If you know your enemy, you'll win 100. But if you know yourself and your enemy, you'll win them all. And then, of course, Orson Scott Card says in his book, Ender's Game, you know, the more I learn my enemy in order to kill them, the more I love them. The more I love them, the less I want to kill them. And that leads me to my last note that I want to say about the Afghanis. I hated them while I was there because I was afraid. Not because of the atrocities I saw. They were horrible. And I did my best to stop them, but I was afraid. Now that I am keenly aware of how their nature is the same as mine and my fear was not just of what was there, but what I was too. And we are all humans here trying to survive in our own ways, throughout our own cultures. I grow into a spot where I can appreciate and love them more. 
and he'd be willing to do something like that again. Yeah, it's a more difficult thing than I think most people give it credit. Oh, yes. So, go ahead. No, just I got a lot of thoughts running around in my head. Hopefully, I left you with more answers than questions. No, I feel like you, I feel like you did answer a lot. You you clarified a lot in hearing, especially interviewing so many of the cat white guys, seeing the stories come together, both in my head and on paper, it's very fulfilling. I don't I don't know if that's the right word for it. But... Gratifying, maybe. Maybe yeah. You'll find and, the words uh, in your wibbly wobbly, super smart college stuff. <laughs> I'm not as no. I don't think I'm that smart. I just <laughs> I I can write decently. Yeah, I spend a lot of time by myself, for better or for worse. Have for a very long time, mm-hmm. for various reasons, and there's still a lot of things that I need to fix about myself. That I don't know, but this isn't about this ain't about me. That's for me on my own time. <laughs> And, uh, no, I think this was one of the more difficult ones, interviews for me to do. And that's not to say it was bad, quite the opposite, because this is something that should be difficult, in my opinion. But yeah. I hope uh, it wasn't, I, uh, go ahead. No, nah, whatever you're going to say. I know I've got a, uh, odd way of putting things together in a very emotional way of conveying messages. But I hope that the clarity I provide can put into perspective the depth of the situation. I know I'm no not I'm not so proud as to say that I am providing some sort of, you know, weird key philosophical insert philosophical word. But I've dedicated a lot of time and thought into turning this into something good. And the shitty part about medicine is it's tough to swallow. It tastes like booty hole. So. Well, I think your story, like Waylon's story, Landon's story, and Forrest's story, and the rest of them as well. But, I mean, those were the ones that you cited most. So that's, that's why I bring those up. And I think your story is going to help a lot of people, both the guys and the men, the women who were there and those that weren't. So I hope that I hope you have that feeling in a way. I hope you I hope that is some level of satisfaction from doing this. Yeah. I mean, I can't decide what your feelings are. All I can do is uh, hope. Yeah. I, if I can leave anyone with something i always want it to be hope hope things will get better hope that you know life won't always be as rough as it is evil will make its way into this world no matter what we do it's it's here and it's spreading like yeast the funny thing about yeast is it's there already it just has to grow hope i think is the reason we do not capitulate to its growth so pin your hope on Something good, something righteous, something lovely, something kind, something true, something beautiful. Pin your hope on on that. And know 
that the alternative hope is Ichikaya. Say that you're here for the the human experience. There's one of them. I only got one other story to share with you. Um, there was uh, there was this kid, and he was making bank with water bottles. <laughs> I don't know how he got a water bottle out there without, without getting ransacked by some random Taliban guy who was thirsty. This kid was just making bank, and he got tired just one night. I don't remember what night it was. He slept on the entrance holes that the Taliban were using to get into the uh, the gate area there. The Taliban weren't allowed to go past the barbed wire. It, it was never stated, but it was kind of like one of those, like, I don't want to risk finding out what the Marines would do if I went past the barbed wire kind of thing, you know? So they would always go through the crowd as opposed to screwing the barbed wire, you know, which would be way easier, but, you know, we were there. This kid fell asleep in the hole that they were climbing through. And Captain Jack Swallow's boyfriend, he's like his sub or whatever, <laughs> had this rusty doll bayonet. And... You can put, insert this story somewhere else. It doesn't have to be the end of this. I feel like it's, it doesn't fit the climate very well. But I had this thought in my head, this memory in my head for a while. So Captain Jack Swallow's boyfriend comes through and he gets bayonet. The kid's there and he looks up and he's like, what the hell? Instead of yelling at the kid or like tapping on his shoulder and saying, hey, listen, kid, I'm trying to get through. Get out of the way. He takes out his bayonet and stabs him in the back. And he climbs up and the kid's like, you know, like, oh my God, what just happened? The kid puts his arm up like this because he's shocked. He's tired. He's in a daze. And the guy just starts hacking at his arm with this rusty doll bayonet. And I see a chunk of this kid's arm fall. And the kid just kind of like falls backwards into the crowd. And like a couple of people are like, whoa, never saw the kid again. Fast forward to the end of that day. The gate's been closed. I'm on the line, you know, with the, the, uh, the bayonet, the shotgun, the rifles and everything. And uh, it was the hokiest crap ever, man. This boyfriend's sitting there, and he's, like, sitting there, like, with his knife, like, looking at me, because they've issued the threat that they're going to kill us. He's, like, trying to intimidate me. And then cuts himself. This knife. <laughs> and he goes, he, like, kind of hides it a little bit. He's just sitting there looking at me still, like, wiping his thumb off. <laughs> oh, my God. It was so funny. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there. Go ahead. No, I was gonna be like, you, you see this hand? This hand? This hand will be you. This hand will be you. As soon as I'm done wiping it off. <laughs> oh my god, it was like, oh, what's that funny movie? The guy who pretends to be from Uzbekistan or whatever. Uh, oh, Borat? Yeah, it's like Borat. No, um, he's sitting there like still trying to like be intimidating and shit, and I'm looking at him, and I flick my rifle off safe, and he goes, <laughs> straight up, he like put his, his knife back, and I was like, yeah, put it back on safe. I just love the image. He's twiddling with he's twiddling with his knife for like five minutes, just staring at you, and then you just flick your rifle on fire on semi. And you just go like, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> that was the funniest shit that happened out there, dude. So good, and it was it was crazy because it's like this kid did not look like a hardcore Taliban guy. By the way, no one said this, but the Taliban looked like the party city version, like the party city costume for Taliban. I'm not even kidding, like. You can see them anywhere in the photos. You're like, yep, that's Party City Taliban. And you just like, they've got like the eyeliner and like the weird cheesy like facial hair, like the chin strap thing and the the weird hats that you see in like some of the old videos and stuff. Like, Allah, what, Yeah, they, they look like 
parts of the Caribbean slash parts of Kabul. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. I know that that story is a little out of context for what we talked about earlier, but I really wanted to end end tonight with a laugh. So. No, that's good. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's not how I edit the interviews. I just edit the interviews for like white space. And uh, if there's a name yeah. or something that needs to be cut out, I just cut that out. Yeah. And uh, no, I think that's 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 hilarious. So, yeah. It was a funny exchange with the Taliban. Oh, um, another funny story. Or I don't know, you have another one? No, no, you're good. You're good. What were you going to say? No, I was going to say another funny story, which I heard that Landon originally mentioned, and then I made sure to call Waylon out on it later. We all were still in Kuwait before y'all went, but y'all knew y'all were going to go. An exercise that you guys did to kind of practice processing refugees and everything like that, where you had like like half the Marines were set up in a line to supposed to like funnel through, get searched, get processed and all that kind of stuff. I'm curious what your role in all that is, where, where you were in all of that. I didn't do that one. So they asked for volunteers oh. at first, and then they're like, all right, we're going to volunteer some people to come. And I was like, check my YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> just like slunk away, slunk like the Grinch. <sighs> I think we actually were doing it like a hip pocket class for Sergeant, I can't remember his name. He's a funky dude, funny dude, not funky, funny dude. I can't remember his name now. He was the red section leader or whatever, red section sergeant, yeah. He's a good dude. He's funny. A little odd. Kind of like Quay, but taller. So <laughs> he's a good dude. I think I think we had a hip pocket with him scheduled at some point. They had to have somebody there. I don't remember what the circumstances were, but I wasn't there for the the refugee processing thing. All I remember was like I remember like saying to Wayne, like, it's not gonna be that clean when we get there, like if we actually go. And he's like, You never know, dude. Like it helps. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> That's such a Wayland thing to say. He's like doesn't matter what he's doing or what's going on. He's like, well, this might be beneficial some way, somehow. So we're going to do it. We're going to try to yeah, do it man. well. That he's, <laughs> that's his attitude for everything. He is always on the positives, man. That's something I would love to do real quick. Is just acknowledge some of the, uh, acknowledge some of the characters in the film. Greg, thank you so much for your support. For the conversations, theological, philosophical indulging in my my uh philosophical rigmarole if you will lannon i am sorry i wasn't more of a friend to you and i didn't spend more time with you but the time i did spend with you was always pleasant and it was always good and i i relish that time shot zach i i miss you bud like bad i missed the fag and wagon that was our vehicle name <laughs> um i missed the shanties I miss the endless jokes about sailors and seamen on the sea ships. And get me that damn book of quotes because we need that shit. <laughs> Hatton, keep being a good man. I know that life hit you hard and sometimes it hits you down pretty bad. But keep being a good man. Sev, shit man. Things weren't great with us. I get that. I'm sorry. I wish I could have been a better Marine for you, for the rest of the guys too. McCall. Jesus, lay off the Wheaties. Holy shit, dude. He's a loose weight, man. That all that muscles pulling on your brain cells. <laughs> Keep it going, man. Valdez, hang in there, brother. I know it's tough. I know it's tough. Please hang in there. Shet, don't you lose any of those gains while you're in the reserves, man. Don't you dare lose those. You're too beautiful. 
Staff Sergeant Riggle, you were the calm in the storm. And I appreciate that. I appreciate him a lot. I know you've got your own storms back on the home front. Seeing you again was good. Gunny Cap, crying out loud. Have a son. Please. Please, God, have a son. We need another one of you for the next generation. Tran, I miss you, bud. It's been a while. It's been a really long while. Richards, Snyder, I miss you guys just popping off on each other, popping off on the other guys, the funniest shit you guys would say. I miss it a lot. Thank you for making your words golden. Ali, eat something for crying out loud, dude. I know you've got your little <laughs> stuff, but eat something. Have some bacon or anything, I guess. <laughs> whatever. Snipers, stop. You guys need to stop cutting line. Curtis, I'm sorry I was hard on you. I am. I get it now. I get it's hard. Millette, I know you put me through the fucking ringer when we got back. Got in trouble for you a lot. But I get it. I do. I'm right there with you, bud. Yeah. That's all I got, man. Well, my not feeling it right now, but that was that was good. That was awesome. And that was you killed it. You were awesome the whole time. I mean that. And like how like I told you yesterday on the phone when we talked, and like I told the other guys, regardless of how shitty it was, what good y'all did accomplish out of all that god awful mess as a credit to yourselves as human beings, it's credit to the unit that you were a part of. That's a credit to the service that you were a part of. And you were an incredible example for the country, in my opinion. The circumstances were not of your making, but you did the absolute best with what you could. And sometimes that didn't always come across awesome, but you did a mission and you tried to complete that mission with all that you possibly had. Going without food, without water, giving it to Afghans who were in absolutely horrible shape, no sleep. As much as we try to help people understand exactly how it was over there, unless you were there, it's there's part of it that you're never going to fully understand, I think. And that goes for me as well. Regardless of how many guys I talk to, how many interviews I do between now and whenever this ends, if it ever does, which is a hard thing for myself to admit a little bit, but it's, it's real. It just is what it is. But because I've had guys comment in, uh, when we have like meetings in the foundation and stuff, they're like saying they don't want to talk to anybody who wasn't there because they want to understand, which is hard for me to hear doing this. I don't like hearing that because I like to think I can, I, I can understand to a point. And as long as I have two ears, I can listen, you know, but no, nah, this is, this has been awesome. It really has. And, and again, congratulations. You're the first one to make me cry. So you can be proud of that. Tell my wife she's she's listening to your podcast now. She is a huge fan. She well, really thank you for that. And uh, yeah, yeah. As far as uh, you said, is it Elisa? Elisa, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, you e- got it right. That. Huh. All right, yeah. I was trying to make sure, trying to make sure I was going to say it right. Like, I don't want to, I want to screw this up. <laughs> but yeah, she wants to. If she wants to contribute, be a part of it. I can, one hundred percent. I can get her in touch with uh, a couple people. Like how I talked told you yesterday on the phone that are trying to run that spouses and loved ones section. And uh yeah, she wants to talk to them and eventually want to be interviewed by one of them because 
I it's my personal opinion that I think a spouse or a loved one doing the interviews for other spouses and loved ones, I think there's things that they'll think about, questions they'll want to ask that yeah. I might not think about, might not ask. And I just think so. And when so, it, yeah, when it when it comes down to it, man, every woman who marries a Marine thinks that they're going to have to go through hell. Like he's going to deploy. I'm barely going to see him. I'm going to be a fear of him dying all the time. Like a negligible amount of women actually go through that. A negligible amount actually go through the real hell Delisa had to endure. The one that everyone's afraid of, very few people actually live through that. Delisa did. So I just want that to be out there for people who are listening to like just marrying a Marine, just marrying a service woman doesn't mean you're going to have to live through really, really, really hard stuff all the time. Some, some of y'all are going to have a blessed life and God is going to shine on you and you'll be with each other the majority of your military career. Or you'll just do four years and have a lifetime of benefits and freaking be able to spend more time with each other and build college theses and contribute to people who, you know, gave everything in their families. Maybe that's you. Doesn't matter. Told this to my poolie last night. He won a tennis tournament. He's like, I know it's just tennis, but I just want to tell you because I was encouraged. That was because I decided, like, dude, it doesn't matter what you do. Every one of us is on this world for a reason, and we're given a certain amount of time to accomplish that task. You're doing well in something. Take that mentality and apply it to your meaning in life. It's worth it. The tennis tournament is a sharpening against the block. You're sharpening that blade. And someday you will be launched into your ultimate goal. And the edge with which you have or find yourself to be will, will determine how well you penetrate and accomplish that goal, just like an arrow. Everything you're doing now is straightening, tuning, fletching, sharpening that arrow. And God's going to launch you into what you are ultimately meant to do. Do not give him a shitty arrow. So spouses, freaking poolies, marines, retirees, kids in high school that don't know what the hell they really want to do with their lives. Words of advice. Don't give out a shitty arrow. That's good. I'll try to remember. That's a good one. I will try to remember that. I got a, what time is it? Oh my God. My boy is the bed, so I got to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, man. I I figured we were about to wrap up anyway, honestly. Yeah. I, I, I hope this is beneficial for you. I really do. Brother, thank you so much. I, breath of fresh air. I know, I know all you did was listen to me, but thank you. Really. I, I was nervous as hell all yesterday, all today. I don't want to give an inaccurate account, but I know I needed this. I've never let everything out like that. Yeah, I got a, a counselor I go to for my church and all that. And got a support system. But you're the first guy who's listened to me from start to finish. So thank you. I'm honored to be the. I really am. That that's a lot. And you're gonna make me cry again. <laughs> I thought Whalen would do that. Honestly, he almost did. Yeah, he almost did. He almost got me. I miss that guy. Got to get him back down. I need to make a mistake again. I made a mistake before we left. It's a good mistake. It's flaming me on and everything, man. You still got his number? Yeah, yeah. We still talk. He actually just sent me a right. photograph of himself while you and I were talking. Probably okay. a, a stupid photo of him from back in one eight when he was wearing his Trump hat and his dress blues or something. <laughs> Man. He she uh 
he sent me the picture of uh, y'all's Christmas PT. Yes, dude. Me, Lennon, and him brainstormed that a cold, rainy day at the armory. We were like, we should just like steal a photo in front of the CG's building in like the shittiest, ugliest sweater we got. Just like steal that photo. And we were like, dude, that's so good. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and first Sergeant Young was livid coming out there. I think somebody got a DUI or something. So he got his ass lit up by his commander. And so he was going to light us up. And then he saw all of us. I think he was like partially happy, partially really perturbed and just, you know, did the good leader thing and let everything happen. So, yeah. That was a funny story too. And it's a, it's a, it's a good picture. It's a good picture. Yeah. Yeah. Brother. Uh, thank you. Oh, sorry. You have something else? No, I was just, I was really about to do what you're doing. <laughs> uh, no, I, it's your podcast, brother. Close your out. <laughs> no, man. Just, uh, yeah, I hope again. I hope this is good, man. I, I know you're saying that, but uh, I have my internal doubts all the time. I always doubt myself. It is what it is. I try to fix that. Sometimes my wife gets on me about it. But yeah, man. I hope. I hope this is good. I hope you have a very good. I hope you have a very good sleep tonight. Thank you. Because you, I, deser- you deserve it. I planned this to be two hours. I had a two-hour script written out in my head, and uh, <laughs> yeah, then I blew that. Thank you so much. I. Listen, man. Um, kind of wish I had you as a senior. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, when you were talking earlier, I wish you were. I wish you were one of mine as well. I wish I had you alongside Corbett, Grim, Landon, Wayland. I would have traded you for. Oh, what was his name? Oh, what was his name? He was such a McGuire. I'm kidding. No, not McGuire. McGuire was fine. I lost <laughs> McGuire anyway to the freaking mortars. Oh God, freaking baby shark. Yep. And uh, no, I can't remember his name. Uh, bro, oh my god, <laughs> oh my god, oh my god. Anyway, back to back to other stuff, but yeah, man, I hope I'm glad this was good. I'm glad you're doing good. At least I, I think you're doing good, right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, right. you're not lying to me, right? No, I'm not, dude. All right. I'm feeling pretty, I'm feeling pretty good, a lot better than I was earlier today, that's for sure. Awesome, dude. And uh, again, hope you uh, go put your son to bed and have have an awesome sleep, dude. You too, brother. I know it's a lot of work I've kind of laid out on your plate. I hope it digests well. And I hope that, I hope you enjoy putting it together, man. I, I really do. This is my, uh, this is my offering. It's what I got. And uh, someday I hope it to be as hope to be as beneficial a person as the men I got to work with. So that that was a true privilege. I proud to be a Marine, proud to be an HKIA, proud to be a husband and a father. But man, I got to work with those guys. It's pretty damn cool. Yeah. I mean, I consider it be I consider it cool just that I got to know some of y'all. The night is uh night's old man. I'll let yeah. you go. I appreciate you. As I as I slowly work all of my friends into into it at the end of every phone call, and they eventually end up doing it back to me. But love you, man. Sorry I didn't get to know you while I was in. I really am. Wish I would have had you in my section. But yeah. <laughs> love you, brother. Be good. Do good things like you have been. And even if you don't feel like it, sometimes keep winning at life because every day that you're here, you're winning at life. Simplify. Simplify, Fidelis. I serve.
Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Good night, dude. Good night, man.